The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. All right, Charlie, first of all, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Very nice to meet you. Why do you do the things that you do? First question is the hardest one. (laughs) Um, I I guess over the years have formed a whole bunch of different answers to that, some of them flippant and sarcastic. Uh, Without rambling on for ages and ages, I suppose it comes down to I'm just really curious. I want to get to these places, see, you know, people living lives differently to mine. I grew up in a tiny little village where... Yeah, it's nice, but nothing happened. Where'd you grow up? Uh, just close to Salisbury in the southwest of England. Uh, I, about 10 miles from Stonehenge down there. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, I suppose I, I started traveling when I was about 18. Took a year out between school and, uh, and university. And just got more and more curious and slowly realized that I enjoyed traveling more if I was getting to places by, I suppose, physically difficult means. Mm. Um, and, and that particularly helps, I suppose, if you turn up in some remote community in a, not that I've been doing this, but in a, a helicopter or a four by four, by four or whatever, uh, there's instantly a, a distance, a sort of divide. You know, you're, I spend most of my time uh, traveling in the developing world where that's just building a barrier. Whereas if you turn up on foot or in a little kayak or on a horse or whatever, then I think people kind of take to that a little bit more. What was your first trip that you did like this? Uh, besides backpacking around Africa, uh, the first time I did anything sort of particularly physically challenging was I flew to Beijing and I had a flight out of uh, Mongolia and kind of quite last minute I thought, oh, well, you know, it's, there's, there's a thousand miles between the two. I'll take a bike, a bicycle. Um, <laughs> didn't get off to the best start. I, uh, I went to a friend's 21st birthday party about 10 days before leaving and um, I don't really remember the party, but when I woke up in the morning, one of my quadriceps had snapped. Um, not torn, but snapped. The, the doctor said that the two ends would kind of flap around like fishtails and eventually graft onto the rest. I don't know how scientific that, that was. Uh, and then on my first night in Beijing, I fell over and broke my wrist a bit drunk. So oh, I, Jesus. Two, two weeks later, when I sort of, you know, cut my cast off and sort of, you know, strapped my knee up a bit and pedaled out, I wasn't in the best shape. And, and, and frankly, the following two... So you just went with a torn calf, quadriceps muscle, fucked up wrist, yep. just went anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I started slow. I'm not a, like, I'm not a sportsman. You know, I'm not an athlete. I've always just liked to, I've never really particularly trained for anything. I tend to try and keep fit, but that's that's, that's kind of it. Um, so I've, I've always sort of thought start slow and build up. And the the two it only took two weeks to, to cross up to the to Ulaanbaatar, the, the capital of Mongolia. And once I crossed the border into Mongolia, there was just no road. It was, you know, it's just desert. And there's kind of tire tracks all over the place. And you just got to... You know, take a northeast bearing and sort of stick with it. Um, and frankly, those two weeks were kind of shitty. Like, I, d- I didn't particularly enjoy them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're, you're probably aware of the concept of type two fun. You know, you've done something and once you've, it's, it's yes. crap. But then once you've finished, you start to rose tint it. Right. And before yeah. I'd even left Mongolia, I was already thinking, yeah, there's, there's, there could be something in this. And I, and I saw the potential of bicycle travel. You know, you, you, you can travel a fair distance. You know, if you want, you can go 100 miles a day. You can go 60 miles very comfortably and still have a lot of the day there. You can travel very cheaply. You can travel for ages. And you get to see all those places in between that you wouldn't really go near if you're you know, on a bus or a train or a car, whatever it is. Did you have any idea of like where food would be, how you would get through these areas? Like, Did you understand like what towns were available? 
I knew, I mean, I had a, for, for that first ride, I had a map and I knew uh, that besides, a, I guess, a 250 mile gap in the Gobi, uh, that there'd be you know, enough towns to, to get, get resupplies. So you just had to go 250 miles through the Gobi Desert. But you can carry a bike you, with a torn quad and a fucked up wrist. Yeah, yeah, in short. But you can carry quite a lot on a bike. You know, you yeah. can carry if necessary, and, and you know, later, you know, in later years, you can carry you know two, three, four weeks of food pretty easily. It's not going to be very exciting. It's going to be just a lot of rice and noodles and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But uh, you can you can sort of stack it up. Did you plan ahead for that? Did you do you understand what your requirements were going to be? Did you like did you sit down and write it all out? I'm going to be there for X amount of hours. I'm going to need Y amount of calories. No, I've I've never been good at planning. Uh, well, no, that's that's not true. That's not fair. I've never loved getting granular with planning. Um, I, you know, when I'm planning food for, uh, you know, earlier this year, I had to plan food for about a month. And I kind of look, that's about a breakfast and just times that a bunch of times. That's mm-hmm. about a lunch. And then just pack an extra, you know, 10, 20 percent and you should be all right. Um, which is which is perhaps a slightly sort of scattergun irresponsible approach, but I've I've slowly got a bit better at knowing what's what's needed, and I mean I've never got into um, calories and, and counting the numbers of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I totally see the value in that, and a lot of people who do similar sorts of things do. Um, but I've I've generally thought you know I don't need to work out that I've got precisely enough protein for any given day or, or, or fat or carbohydrate whatever it is because usually these aren't hugely long endeavors you know a few months you can go with a slightly imbalanced diet maybe take some multivitamins I would imagine that you're burning a lot of calories though riding that bike through the desert for 250 miles yeah um, I mean like I, I look back at that trip there and I think that was quite straightforward really I, and I do think that I'm not one of these people who says hey anybody can do anything but I don't think that particular ride across you know across to, to Mongolia was especially difficult um, but it was it was for me it was uh, revelatory because I just got this idea of what bike travel could be and it was it was only a couple of weeks less probably 10 days after I finished that I got a bit drunk and made a on on a Genghis Khan vodka and made quite a rash decision to cycle for what ended up being about four years um, Genghis Khan booker what are you saying vodka oh Genghis Khan vodka sorry yeah. okay no worries I've got a plummy accent no worries um yeah, and I made this decision to cycle uh, from the UK back to the UK via the furthest away point in each of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Uh, and that ended up taking about four years. So you do this first trip and you decide after it's completed that, you know, you get this interesting feeling, you know, it was fun, it was exciting, it was adventurous, and that this is something you're going to do often. Are you writing about these things? Are you making videos? Like, what do you what are you doing once you're done? Um, I I write basically. Um, I'm I'm not a you know videographer. I take photos. Uh, I didn't for for the four year trip that followed. I didn't have social media at that time, um, so I, I very much focused on writing. And every day at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how sort of sweaty and uncomfortable I might be in a tent or cold or whatever, I will write down what happened that day and just just get it all down. And later you can then kind of you know get yourself back into that frame of my frame of mind mm. and all these other details will suddenly start springing back in it's you know it's quite a helpful sort of uh, key to unlocking other memories um yeah but uh writing is my main focus how do you fund these trips uh initially i was saving scrimping and saving and um that first long journey i lived for four and a half years as it turned out uh on about twelve thousand pounds which back then would have been i guess sixteen thousand dollars 
Um, and For so four I, years? Yeah, yeah. So I, I lived in a tent. I ate very cheaply. Occasionally, I'll get a night in a hostel or something. Um, you can live for a r really small amount of money if you're just out in the wild. Um, more recently, I, I get sponsorship or grants that sort of you know, help and cover expenses. But I've always done things in quite a lo-fi way. I've never done hugely complicated or expensive journeys. I've always quite enjoyed the, uh, I guess, the accessibility of doing stuff that anyone logistically probably could do if they, if they put a bit of thought to it. The four-year one, like how does one go about deciding that you're going to do something that's going to take four years out of your life? Like, did you recognize that it was going to take that long? Like, would it? I reckoned it would take about that. And, and rashly is the answer. I kind of, you know, I came up with the idea before I really gave it a lot of thought. And the first thing I did is told a bunch of people, you know, family included, hey, I'm going to, in a year's time, I'm going to head off on a bike for about four years. And once I told a bunch of people, then it became almost a certainty to me because, you know, I think I would have been embarrassed to then back down. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess, I mean, I've always found that quite handy with any with any project, you know, just let people know, set yourself a start date, and then the wheels are already in motion. Uh, and out of sort of shame or embarrassment, you'll probably end up going through with it. Whew, that's, I can't think that anybody would fault you for quitting. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody would say, oh, Charlie, you only did three years. I came close a bunch of times. Did but, you? you know, by the time I got three years, you know, then it's like, well, I might as well, might as well finish it off. And when you get to the end of that, are you gonna? Did you write a book? Did you? Did you? Oh, I have something for you. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Before I forget, actually, I got something else as well. Um, bear with me. Let's see what have we got here? These are, I believe, for you, Joe. Well, oh, thank you. Um, those two books are about that four-year bike there ride. There you go. Um, and I've got a couple for Jamie. And now, w once you do this, so you get back, and I, I would imagine, like, writing down everything at the end of the day, I'm sure helps, but it's got to be difficult to sort of capture this, the nuances of each experience. I mean, I, you, if you're writing for four years, mm -hmm. I would imagine there's a lot of very notable experiences you're having during this time. Like, how are you remembering all these and documenting them and I mean it's it, like photos help as well you know over the course of four years I probably had something like 15,000 photographs and that that helps you know furnish a picture but um I mean it's really just what I said about what 1600 days I kept a journal every single day sometimes they're very brief you know just and you're just you know, writing it down hand just, to paper yeah in, in a bunch of you know tatty old notebooks that mm -hmm. I've got kind of you know falling apart on a shelf somewhere and what was the path um so I started uh near Salisbury where I grew up um, headed across the channel up Western Europe through Scandinavia to Nordcap, which is the, the northernmost point of Europe. It's up in the Norwegian Arctic. Um, that's quite a dramatic place. The, the sort of monument at Nordcap is at the top of a 300-yard-high um, well, 300 cliff. You go and look over the railing, and you've got the Arctic Ocean sort of crashing against it. The North Pole is wow. another 1,200 miles on. Um, then I took a sort of very long, wiggly path across Eurasia to Singapore, which took you know, nine, ten months or so. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but I didn't know what route I was going to be taking for that. Um, you know, I, I didn't, again, I didn't allow myself to get too bogged down with details. And also, over the course of nearly half a decade, so much changes. You know, the, yeah. the, the Arab Spring happened after I started. So oh, the wow. Middle East, you know, changed, the geography and the geopolitics of the Middle East totally changed after I started, before I got back around to that part of the world. Is this your bike? 
Uh, that is the second of two bikes. Yeah, that one I did. One of them break. So the, the the other one, the one I started with, I got off eBay for a hundred pounds secondhand. So not <laughs> not a great bike, you know, basic. Um, and that one got me all the way about thirty four thousand miles to Cape Town. Uh, and then that bike was sadly stolen. Just I was locked up on it was locked up on the street. Oh Jesus! Uh, and coincidentally, that afternoon I, I'd been invited on a radio show to talk about my trip, and the the DJ asked me about his bike, you know, and Cape Tonians, uh, you know, they're into cycling, mountain biking. And I think he was expecting some specs or, you know, what, you know, what I was riding. And all I could really say is actually yeah, it got stolen this morning. And he, I'm about to murder an accent and you'll get angry emails. But uh, he said, oh, no, that's absolutely terrible. Like, let's get this boy here a bicycle. We can get him back home. And he uh, said, any of you, you listeners out there, you've got a bicycle. You send us a message. We'll get it to this boy. Um, and about six or seven bikes were sort of presented to me the next day. Mm. Well, I had to go around the city and collect them all up. But a couple of kids' bikes, one was an antique, one had been found in a canal, um, <laughs> the frame of which I ended up using. So I took them all apart and I, oh. made, I made one bike from all the different parts. And I, I just what, the, the bottom bracket, the kind of part between the, the pedals in the, that sort of hub, that was the only part I got from a shop. And the rest uh, was just these these decimated bikes kind of you know bastardized into this this one frankenstein frame well that's a cool story yeah. and so then this bike you rode for the remainder of the journey yeah that got me ten thousand miles in one year back home and then, and then was stolen a few How weeks long? later in london was it really yeah it oh, was basically wow. unrideable by that point is that i can't tell which one yeah that's the that first is. one that's up in tibet okay. how um, long do bike tires last because I know I, you change car tires. I don't think I've ever changed a bike tire, but I can imagine the rubber. Oh, they definitely wear out. Yeah. Um, I think I, I, mean, I kept a tally of all this stuff. I think I got through something like 20 tires. But, I mean, they last a lot longer if you don't buy a pair for $3 in an African village that are made in China. Is that what um, you did? No, I could, you know, I just got whatever I could. And I think 256 punctures, 20 or so chains. Like, you know, there, wow. it was, um, there's a, a phrase in the UK, triggers broom. There's an old TV show called Only Fools and Horses where some not-too-bright character gets an award from the council. He's a street sweeper for having the same broom for 17 years. Mm. And, uh, you know, after he's given this medal, he, you know, he says, no, it takes a lot of dedication to care for a broom. This broom's had 17 new handles and 25 new heads over the years. And, that, and that's kind of what the bike was like. You know, besides the frame, just about every other part was slowly swapped out as, <sighs> I, as I went around. Wow. And when you're traveling through through all these places... What kind of language barriers are there? Do you, I mean, do you understand other languages besides English? I'm not a natural linguist. Um, I, I can get by in French. And that was handy in sort of Central and West Africa. Um, I picked up and sort of worked quite hard at, at Russian. I got some Russian, um, which in the, the Stan, you know, Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, etc. That was handy. When you say picked up, did you pick up on the fly or did you prepare? I uh, probably a few months before I got to that part of the world, I picked up some um, uh, like audio lessons mm -hmm. uh, and just sort of listened to them while I was while I was on, on the road. Um, and then I got quite good at just sort of, I guess, charades. You know, even even if uh, like China was always linguistically the hardest place, mm. but even after I learned how to ask for an egg, you know, in a village shop, some rural area, I still preferred to do it the way I'd done for, for you know for weeks up to that point, which was go into a shop and start sort of you know flapping, clucking your wings and <laughs> sort of you know clucking slightly more and more manically, and then oh, that's pulling hilarious. out from behind me an egg and pointing at it. They go, oh, the foreigner wants an egg. Yeah, we'll get him some eggs. Oh, that's um, hilarious. So you, yeah, you can make a bit of a game of it. Um, yeah. And of course, yeah, in lots of parts of the world, there are plenty of people who do speak good English. Um, so I also, I wasn't, um, 
I wasn't washing a great deal at this time in my life, you know, living in a tent, getting the odd splash wash in a puddle or a river or whatever. And so my hands, which were on front of me in the bike, uh, sorry, in front of me on the bike's handlebars most of the day, uh, when I arrived in a new country, I'd find the first English speaker I could and ask them how to count to 10 in their language. And then I'd write on my knuckles, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 on each hand. And then, you know, on the palm, hot, cold, yes, no, good, bad, up, down, left, right, just a whole bunch of vocabulary. And that, you know, you pick it up pretty quick when it's in front of you for maybe six, eight hours in a day. And when that was done, I'd wash them off and maybe learn some new words and sort of carry on. So even though I was passing through regions and, and didn't have all that long to get to grips with many languages, I, I got a bit of a head start with that. Oh, wow. Uh, what is it like when you're alone for that long? That's probably the biggest challenge. And I've definitely got better at that over the years. But when I was off on that bike trip, you know, there were... There were times, particularly up in Tibet, where that picture was, that the road I was following in Tibet is the, the, the Western sort of approach to Tibet. And on a good day, I was there in winter, which is not ideal, it's, it's cold. But on a good day, there'd be maybe one vehicle going in either direction. But often there'd be several days at a time with no vehicles, and um, there were you know no settlements along the way. And later on, so to get into Tibet, I didn't have permission. So I had to sort of, <laughs> in, in the night, I cut a hole in the fence of a military base and snuck into, into Tibet. Uh, so beyond that point, I was having to kind to of To get hide. into Tibet, so it's difficult to get into Tibet? Yeah, so, so the, you know, Tibet used to be an independent country. Right. A lot of protest. Most, you know, ethnic Tibetan people don't want to be part of China. But in the 50s, the, the you know, the, the People's Liberation Army marched in. Uh, and uh, this was only a couple of years after the um the beijing olympics and in the lead up to those there were in in lhasa the, the capital i think it was around three dozen uh, self-immolations you're aware of that phrase yeah yeah and usually Terrific. monks yeah and you know for, for the listeners who might not know well they probably be, know from the rage against the machine cover yeah yeah exactly yeah. that so people marching out in you know in front of the 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 soldiers or the police pouring a tin of uh, petrol over themselves or gasoline lighting themselves on fire and, and burning to death you know in protest at what they see as the the occupation of their their country uh and of course the the chinese government doesn't want people seeing these sorts of scenes so they they, they made the whole area off limits to foreigners and basically well it still is really that you you can visit sort of limited little pockets in 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 lhasa the capital and a couple of other kind of temples in towns nearby but to do that, you've got to be in a in a group with a guide and a vehicle and permits, and you know it's 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 expensive, and and you you're just not allowed to travel by yourself with with a bike. So that was the only way I could get in was to sort of sneak in. But after that point, I was then having to to hide the whole time. And and to bring bring it back to your question, the loneliness there, I really really struggled. You know, I was I was up there for about six weeks, and you know probably had two conversations in that time. You know, it was it was really hard. Um, but now I've got a lot better at it. And this, I keep meaning to look this up because there's someone, it's one of those people that's always quoted, it'll be Oscar Wilde or Mark Twain, someone like that, once said that uh, loneliness is the paucity of one's own company and uh, solitude is the richness of it. Uh, and it's, mm. you know, it's two sides of the same coin. So being by yourself can totally suck. But if you just kind of try and flip the perspective a bit, and you know, it's not always possible and it's certainly not easy, you can then sort of you know, enjoy the, pay, the space, the peace, the freedom, um, particularly if you've got a you know kind of a busy life when you go back home. It is an interesting thing about human beings that we seem to have a requirement for other people's company. Mm. I mean, we really do. Like we do enjoy moments of solitude. You know, like sitting on a dock, you know, looking out at, a, at an ocean, just relaxing, maybe having a cup of coffee by yourself. But if that goes on for too long, we 
have like a, a deep feeling of longing and a, a sorrow comes over us and well we're pack animals yeah and, and you know i guess uh, this is my cod evolutionary uh sort of take on it but i suppose anyone over the millions of years of, of our evolution who had that instinct to always be there by themselves probably wouldn't have been passing their genes on so much and right. so, so you know it probably would have been bred out you know we, we've selected for people who live in communities yeah it makes sense it only makes sense but it's it's so strange how uh intense it is when when you are alone for long periods of time and for people that have never experienced that it's uh i mean what you've done and and doing that is uh it's really extraordinary and i would imagine it gives you some very unique insight into how your own mind works yeah uh I think I've always been relatively good in my own company. I, 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 I suppose years ago I might have referred to myself as, as, as a loner in the in the sort of the positive sense of that word. Supposed to, I guess it, it's, it's probably a bit of an insult as well. Yeah. But I, you know, I do like my own company. I'm I'm happy in my own company. But I have got, I suppose, over long periods, I I, I would realize later that I'd sort of essentially de-socialized. And you know, suddenly being back in in a community or around people where I can have a conversation, it just takes a bit of time to kind of, you know equalize after after being by yourself for a long time uh, because you I mean you got no one else to answer to yeah you know it's it's uh it's it's total freedom and that can be uh an indulgence a self-indulgence one of the, I mean I've never spent that kind of time alone but I, I've spent time in the woods and when you when you're by yourself for a day or two one of the things that always hits me is you start evaluating your own life evaluating relationships, evaluating friendships, evaluating, you know, work, various things that you, you don't normally think about in such great depth. But when you're alone and you don't have anyone to talk to, it's like those are the things that the mind wants to dig up and maybe examine. Mm -hmm. Did you find that? Definitely. And it's, um, it's definitely a positive thing to do, you know, the more... Yeah time you've got to chew things over the you know the more to grips you're going to get with any any problems in your life or you know whatever it might be and then there's always the temptation which I kind of I, I'm quite uh, regimented with myself about how long I allow myself to listen to music or podcasts or whatever in any given day when I'm off doing some trip like this um, I mean I first came across your podcast when I was in the Congo I think mm. um, and you know it's, it's you know podcasts are great you know but suddenly you've got company all day and that's a way to I suppose you're you know you'll be thinking about and learning about whatever's been spoken about but you're not exploring things by yourself in, in the way that you can if you just have silence and, and, right. and peace and I'm quite strict with myself like on my latest trip I, you know I'd allow myself in the morning you know an hour of listening to something and then in the afternoon maybe another hour at some point and then while cooking dinner I could listen to something like that how did you decide that amount of time uh, I mean, it's, it was arbitrary. Essentially, it just needed to be, to just Regimented. needed to ensure that I wasn't, you know, you know, doing that all the time. So I'd, I mean, it wouldn't always be exactly an hour, but maybe a podcast. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of yours is is the whole morning, of course. Right. But um, yeah, you know, something short like that. You went through the Congo on a bike. Uh, I started on a bike. I, I was actually with someone else for this part of this is the the bike journey. Mm -hmm. um, so this was twenty fourteen. Um, a guy from Scotland who I'd met, he, he was motorbiking down the uh, the east coast of Africa with a couple of friends, and I, I think about seven times we kept bumping into each other. They, they were covering a lot more ground. They were taking a more sort of circuitous route than me. But in Cape Town, him and I spent a bit of time together, and he said, hey, well, so, you know, when you go to Congo, I'll fly up and I'll join you. And so in the capital of Zambia, Lusaka, he, he flew up, he bought a 
bike for I think about ninety pounds, like a sort of three gear, shitty, heavy, sort of strong bike. Uh, and we we cycled into Congo DRC. You know, there's two Congos, the big one, the the, the fucked up one, I guess. Um, yeah. it, we cycled across the border in the south in in the Copper Belt, and then followed the border all the way across the south of the country until eventually the road we were following just kind of ran out. Um, but there was a river there, and we we had been aware that this was going to happen. The Lulua is the name of the river. And so we uh, we bought a dugout canoe, which is or a pirog they call it there, which is essentially just a, a tree trunk with the inside scooped out. You know, it's mm-hmm. your, your sort of typical, I suppose you'd say, tribal canoe that you'd you'd see right across the world in all sorts, you know, in South America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in you know, Papua New Guinea, the same sort of thing. And we bought one that was about five and a half meters long, I think, and for the next month we kind of battled this thing down a river. Um, but as we so it, it was not a it was not in great shape. Uh, and we had to get in it, all our gear and two bicycles. And these things sit really low in the water. Mm. You've got maybe two inches of clearance. You know, if the, any small rapids, the water's coming in and you're you're going down. Um, but as we, after we bought it, we pulled it up onto the riverbank and we turned it upside down and we were patching some little leaks and cracks and trying to kind of brace it. And the whole village just gathered around us in this big, excited, but concerned crowd. And they were tutting and shaking their heads. And a sort of spokesperson essentially stepped forward and said, really i don't think you should go on the river um there are there are rapids and waterfalls and we're like yeah you'll be right and there are hippos and crocodiles and you know if you guys don't drown you'll be eaten and you'll be dead in a day either way um and we took it with a pinch of salt and 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 that month was probably the most fraught of my life it was it was ridiculous every day we'd be struggling down rapids the smallest little rapid would be enough to sink us and the boat wouldn't sink it would just go you know down it would sit you know two or three inches under the water but unless we had them all strapped down, all our bags would start floating off in different directions. Oh, and we're Jesus. sort of splashing around in the water, trying to gather everything. Oh, that one's got the money and the cameras. Oh, get that bag. That's got all of our food. Oh, Passports Jesus. over there. And all the while you're wondering, when is a crocodile just going to come and sort of grab your ankle? <sighs> Did you um, see them? We, we only saw one. Really? Um, they, so they, they, I mean, they're around. Everyone kept saying they're around. Lots of people we yeah. met said they, you know, they, they do see them. I think they've been hunted quite a lot over the years. Uh, and although these are on the, the Congo, so this is a tributary of the Congo River, um, they're, they're Nile crocodiles. That's the species. And they, yeah. they grow up to, I mean, they get really big. They're 20 feet long. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's about the max. Yeah, yeah. they're huge. Um, but so we, that's a dangerous animal. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was a, we were in a really remote area. There are no roads. There were just footpaths connecting villages. And no one else was stupid enough to travel up and down the river. You know, people had canoes, pirogs, uh, but they would just use them for fishing. So they would just sit on the water, you know, place some nets, come back out. Um, and we, <laughs> we one afternoon were paddling along, and there was this group of maybe fifty men on the riverbank, all just waving and singing and dancing around, shaking machetes above their heads. And so we didn't pull over. You know, we thought we'll, we'll pass by. But uh, a few hundred yards on, there were just two men by the by the on, on the bank, and we pulled up to them and said, "You know, what, what's going on there?" And they said, "Oh, they just killed a crocodile, a big one." And I said, "How big?" And they said, five meters." So that's about fifteen, sixteen feet. Mm. Yeah, so big. Um, one night a hippo yeah, well we'd hear the hippos sort of honking out yeah they make that very particular noise we'd hear them out what on does the a hippo noise sound like sort of a, hah, hah, <laughs> as best I can do <laughs> um, but yeah we'd hear those quite a lot at night and um, you know we had to camp on the riverbank but the hippos go out for walks around at night and Sometimes there'd be, you know, shoulder-high elephant grass, and the only places that we could really pitch a camp would be in these channels that the hippos would tread through it. So, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a difficult time. After a month, we finally reached a road, oh, sort of sand tracks, I guess, uh, and a couple of days later, just managed to get to a town in time for me to collapse into bed with a pretty severe case of malaria. 
Um, oh, wow. But I had typhoid fever at the same time, so it was like double trouble. Oh, um, boy. So I couldn't really walk for about a week. Um, so, yeah, that was a... That was a what that, did they give you to get go. over the malaria? I was really lucky I managed to get... We managed to get to a town, um, and I went to the Catholic mission um, where they had a nurse and said, like, please treat me. Um, Archie will buy... Archie is my friend. Um, he'll buy the drugs. And uh, so this, this nurse, um, a guy... Uh, actually, whose name I shouldn't say. Um, he uh, he gave me drips of um, ciprofloxacin uh, and I think oh, I'm trying to remember uh, uh, metanidazole. I think two different antibiotics, um, just a, a lot of drips. But the drips were the most frightening thing because he didn't use clean needles each time. <laughs> so oh boy. he would sort of do the drip in the morning, yank it out my arm, and then just kind of hang it over the mosquito net come back in the afternoon, kind of blow it off, and then plug it straight back <laughs> into my arm. Um, Great. So if you don't die of malaria, you die of infection. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a worrying time. Yeah. Jesus Christ. So how long did it take you to recover from the malaria? Well, I didn't have long because we had to get, you know, our visas were only three months, and, and we'd already been going for over two months. Um, so we had to get out of the country within a certain amount of time. So um, after, I think it was probably about eight days, um, we then, uh, you know, I was, I was able to walk again. I was still super weak. We then had to go and sort of get passage on a, a bus, as they call it there. But this is just a truck with a you know, metal you know, con- shipping container in the back of it. And we spent about five days on these trucks kind of bouncing around. You either cling to the top. There's no road. It's all just mud tracks. Um, in, in the rainy season, which was kind of not far off, uh, it would take a month to do that five-day drive to the capital that, that we... Because um, it's so much mud? Well, yeah, the roads just churn up. You know, the, the, the roads, the tracks that we were on were sometimes these sort of you know channels carved f- five six yards deep into the mud you know wow and so as soon as it starts raining they're all completely gone <sighs> um i came across the so the monsoon arrived six weeks or so later by which time i was up in the other congo way up in the in the north kind of uh, near the border of cameroon and central african republic on these mud tracks and suddenly i just saw all these trucks that had kind of you know run off the tracks into the into the trees and there were people who had been stuck there for days and days and days um I mean, I couldn't even push my bike. I had to carry it for about a day and a half, take everything off, carry it for a mile, hide it in a bush, walk back. It was, <laughs> it was five miles for every one mile forward, just portaging it back and forth. Holy shit, um, man. Yeah. How was, much crime did you encounter? Not a huge amount. I mean, I, um, I mean, like pocket got picked in in malaysia which is one of the safest <laughs> places in the world uh my horse got stolen in mongolia that that happens um you had a horse yeah they're not they're not expensive um, how much is a horse i bought a horse for about 120 pounds so i guess 150 really? bucks or so you get um, a horse for 150 bucks it, it depends how many every few years mongolia has um they, they call it a uh uh snow on ice event uh, so essentially the, the you know mongolia winter is really cold you know, it gets down to about minus 40 fahrenheit or celsius um and if uh, if it snows and then thaws and then freezes you get this crust of ice mm. over the ground the the horses which are kind of left to their own devices over winter they're, they're kind of semi-feral it's called you know they're, they're kind of half wild um they, they they can't break through that crust of ice as they would with snow with their hooves to get to the grass uh, so come spring actually last time i was in mongolia the, the whole countryside was just littered with corpses of sheep and horses and, wow. and goats uh, so if they've had a bad winter before sometimes they lose up to about a third of their kind of national livestock then horses cost quite a lot but it wasn't too bad when i was there um the, the horse i would sort of at night 
Uh, so I spent about two months hiking across Mongolia with this horse. I tried to ride it, but it was so small, the tiny little pony. I, I'd gone to quite a lot of effort to find a horse that was you know, up to the challenge. And I went out into this sort of village outside the capital city, asked around. And, and you know, you can't do anything there without having to drink copious amounts of vodka. It's, it's a real pain in the ass, to be honest. You have to? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just the way everything is done. Um, and How so? Well, hey, you want to come and look at a horse? Great. Well, let's first, um, let's first, you know, let's first drink some vodka, and um, we'll pour a little offering to the gods, and we'll flick a little bit into the sky as an offering to the sky god. And, you know, it'd be rude to refuse because you know it's it's an offering. Right. And then, I mean, to be fair, I was in my mid twenties, so I was you know I was quite happy just to drink the stuff. Um, but uh, you know, this kind of quite unpleasant paint stripping vodka, and just bottles and bottles and bottles. So I spent this long day going from person to person to person out, you know, in the sticks, um, you know, driving across you know grasslands, you know, off road. And finally, we met these people who had a, this guy had a horse to sell. And he said, yeah, here's the horse. Do you want to check it out? And I was like, all right. I didn't, I, I had never ridden a horse before. I didn't know what I was looking for. But I thought, <laughs> I'll check out the hooves. I was about to try and check the back hooves. And they're like, no, 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 don't do that. You'll, yeah, you'll get your face Christ. kicked off. But I checked the front hooves. I checked its teeth. You know, um, she, it was a, a, a female horse, didn't look too old. Um, you know, decent, strong, you know, coat was in good condition. I thought, yeah, this is fine. And we agreed a price. And um, about two days later, I had to go back to the capital to get my stuff, buy a saddle. About two days later, I came back, met the guy, and he presented me with this horse. And I was like, well, that's a different color, and it's got testicles. Um, so that's a, that's a different horse altogether. But, you know, it wasn't really much I could do about, do about it. Um, so this horse didn't really take to being ridden. Um, I don't think it was too small. I don't think he could really cope with me and my not very heavy bags. So you just um, use it sort of as a pack, pack horse? horse? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we, we walked. And at night, I would make a fire. You'd hear wolves howling. Yeah, often I'd make a fire and sort of tether the horse 10 yards away and that's kind of the first line of defense mm-hmm. um, and one morning the horse had been uh, yeah, the tether had been cut and someone had been in the night but I'd pretty much got to where I was going oh before I forget wow. this is a Mongolian wolf tooth for you which oh, wow. uh, an old hunter gave me he claimed that he shot the wolf but I was not 100% sure why is about that? that well uh, it's you know it, there's a kind of a, you know braggadocio braggadocio element to it it's kind of a macho thing to have shot wolves and i met a lot of people who said yeah i've killed many wolves but back in soviet times there were you know mongolia was kind of a satellite it wasn't technically part of the soviet empire but it was sort of a protectorate uh, there used to be a quota every mongolian man had to kill two wolves each year um to, to sort of keep their numbers down otherwise they would decimate the the livestock um anyway that's uh, that's uh, wow. from a from a wolf that he got hold of somehow maybe he shot it you're skeptical, though. Well, I'm I'm kind of a skeptic generally, I think. Um, and the way he told me, it didn't give me necessarily the impression that, it, that he had shot it. <laughs> Do you know the story about uh, the World War One uh, Russian German standoff they, with they, wolves? They took like a two day truce, right? Yeah, yeah. They took a truce. They they stopped fighting to kill the wolves because there were so many soldiers were getting killed they, by wolves. They were losing like one or two soldiers a day or something. It was well, something nights, insane. Rather. They had well. The problem was, you know, they were fighting trench warfare, mm. right? And so they would get shot, and they would be crying and screaming out in these trenches, and then you would hear, when <laughs> people would be eaten alive by yeah. wolves. Yeah. The wolves would find these wounded soldiers and tear them apart, and then people would go out on scouting missions, and they wouldn't find anything but boots and, you know, and. and pieces of their clothes covered in blood and then they realized like jesus christ we're losing more people to wolves than we are to the germans or the russians <laughs> actually just uh, earlier this year i came across a memorial to to finish sold pow's who had been sent up to this distant part of siberia from that war people had been captured mm. um, it was crazy to think they've been captured like way out there and sort of you know in europe and they've been sent to this 
desolate spot at the end of the continent and just told to fish to sort of supply the Russian Navy, I think it was. But there are all these, like on, on the, the, the the cliffs at the north of Asia, like facing out. I mean, you can't imagine a more like barren, isolated, brutal spot. And there was just, uh, I, I saw one, I was told there was another somewhere nearby that I didn't spot, just a, a crucifix set up for, the, for the, the, the dead fins. I don't know how many were sent out there. I haven't wow. it up yet. But yeah, so if you, you know, if the wolves don't get you and the Russians do, then you know, the cold will get you eventually. What was the, the like, what's the terrain like in Mongolia when you're making your way through this? Um, mostly steppe grassland, um, but I went through some sort of low mountains. Um, they ha- it, it's the most, it's an incredible country, Mongolia. Like, it's it's just so ripe for adventure. It, it's, uh, it's about the same size as Spain, France, and Germany put together. Uh, but the population's just over three million, and oh, wow. most of it, it's the most sparsely populated country on earth. Um, really, there's, there's kind of a person per square kilometer. Um, but mo- <sighs> but more than half the population live in the capital, and there are a handful of other not big but you know towns. And so the countryside's just open. And it's, what is the it's, capital like? Uh, it, it's changed a lot since I first went. Um, you know, it was a it was all just kind of grim Soviet apartment blocks. Um, and it's set in this kind of valley in winter. I've not been there in winter, but in winter, it's the most polluted city on earth because um, everyone to, to there's kind of increasingly people are being drawn into the capital from outside and they come in and set up their yurts or gurs, as they call them, these kind of circular felt tents, which you can survive you know, the harshest conditions in. But to heat them, they're just using coal or yak shit or horse shit or mm. you know, um, cow shit. And so just all of the particulate matter that, so it's, it's, the, it's the most polluted by a particular count on the the pm10 i think the size of particle which you, i think if you breathe in they can get quite deep into your lungs but not all the way to the tips like that tiny ones in beijing for instance um but uh yeah there's just this kind of pall of pollution that hangs over this narrow long valley that the capital stretched along but recently you know they've got I think there's like a Shangri-La there now and some high glass buildings and it's it's changing quite a lot. They, they had in, in about 2012, they opened a huge mine that I think it's Toktogoy, I think the name, I, I forget. But in, in 2012, uh, The Economist magazine found Mongolia to have the world's fastest growing economy because they opened this one mine and overnight the economy grew by 40% like that month. Um, it's all relative, right? Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, it was a very, very low base start line. Um, but yeah, I think that's largely gold and copper. Um, and since then, there's been a lot of wrangling over how much, you know, what percentage of the profits is, is you know, kept channeled into Mongolia and what percentage goes outside. But uh, that's, t- I think that's turned the country around quite a lot. But, but there's no fences. The whole countryside is just, you know, there's, there's the Gobi Desert. There's sort of um, tiger, like Siberian forest across the north. There are the Altai Mountains in the west. The rest is grasslands and there's lakes and rivers everywhere. And there's just no fences. It's all common land and you can just head wherever you want. It's awesome. It's really great. It's wild that they still use those felt tents because mm. that was literally what they Genghis them, Khan. Yeah, exactly the same. Um, and, you know, nowadays they'll have maybe a car battery to run, uh, you know, they have a satellite dish and a TV, and you know it's changing quite a lot. Um, you, you, there's, I mean, there's only one or two homes I visited that still looked really quite similar to how, in, internally how they would have 800 years ago when Genghis Khan was charging mm. across the continent. Wow! And so this trek through Mongolia took you how long? Uh, I was there for th- three months in total. Um, so I did two, two months on the horse and then once the horse was pinched, I got to more or less where I wanted to go. And so then I got, got the bike back and carried on cycling, um, sort of through to, to central Asia. 
And then once you get to Central Asia, then how long before you get back to where you wanted to go? Uh, well, this was all part of that same long right. bike ride. So, you know, there was probably still two years to go to get, <laughs> <laughs> to get you know, down through. Charlie, that's so crazy. <laughs> uh, two and a half, perhaps. Uh, that to is get down so through, crazy. Through, like, Central Asia, the Middle East, and down the whole east side of Africa. Now, are you corresponding with anyone back home while this is happening? Do people know you're safe? Like, how are you? I emailed sort of as and when I could. I, I um, when I, t- When I took the... Uh, ferry from uh, Britain to France at the beginning of the trip. I had, um, you know, phones were different back then. I had a really old, it wasn't a Nokia 3310, but it was something along those lines. This is 2010. I think the first iPhone might have just come out, but it's a long mm. time ago. I think that was 2007, if I remember correctly. Oh, right. Okay. Was um, it? Something like that. <laughs> I think the first iPhone, somewhere around then, because there's, yeah, I but, think somewhere around then. But I didn't want a phone, you know, I, I wanted mm-hmm. sort of you know, freedom from all that. And my, my plan had been, I let, you know, I arranged my phone contract that the company that the contract would run out around about that time. And I'd planned when crossing the channel to like go up to the top of the ferry um, and just hurl it into the sea. And I, and I, <laughs> the, 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 the ferry company kindly gave me like a, a, a free crossing in their sort of club class and the bar was quite, you know, open. Um, so I didn't get around to that. And a few weeks later, I just sort of tossed it in a lake in Sweden, which with hindsight, I don't feel good about. Yeah, that's plastic. Right. I shouldn't have done that. But, it was but it's symbolic. Time. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't, you know, I, I kept in touch with family through email as best, as often as I could. Did you use like internet cafes? Exactly, yeah. Or, or if, you know, if I couldn't find that, I'd just, I mean, I got quite good at just like going into a, you know, some random office and saying, hey, can I use your computer? Really? People were surprisingly receptive. You know, you're in the middle of, you know, Iraqi Kurdistan. Can I use your computer? Yeah, yeah, sure. Just um, turn it off when you're done. Oh, thanks. Wow. Um, people people are very friendly wherever you go, broadly speaking. That's really <laughs> fascinating because you, you probably have a different perspective of just running into strangers in other countries than most people do. Most people would think that people would be very hesitant. Mm. You know, some weird Englishman shows up and... Once you use your computer, well, I think I wherever I go, I tend to sort of be a bit of a novelty, so people are interested initially. Mm-hmm. Um, did you anticipate that though? Like, like what did you think you were going to be able to do, to, or did you just figure it out along the way? Yeah, I just figured it out as I went. Um, so you didn't have any plan, like this is how I'll make sure that everyone knows I'm okay. No, no. Um, I, you know, back then I probably wasn't great at sort of keeping my parents in the loop exactly as to where I was. And when I went to Afghanistan, I didn't tell them about it. I told one friend and said, if you don't hear from me in six weeks, then perhaps call the call the government. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I tried to keep them sort of as unworried as possible, um, which, I mean, I've got three siblings, so there's, there's spares. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> spares. So... When you get done with this trip, mm. I mean, this is a four-year trip. What do you do? Do you have a home at this point in time, or did you not have an apartment anymore? No, I, I, um, I, I hadn't. I had nowhere to. I mean, I went back to my parents' place for a few weeks, and I had no. I had thirty pounds to my name when I came back. You know, what I, is the first day back like? Like when you when you show up at your parents' house, what is that like? Weird. Uh, well, so I um, about two months before I finished, I think I was still somewhere in southern Morocco or Mauritania. My dad said via email, you know, let's have a party when you get back. Let's have a sort of a homecoming. And so we arranged, we picked a time and a date and arranged a place in London, um, a street where friends of family could come and gather and we had a little sort of welcome home party. So I was told, yeah, seven, at the stroke of seven o'clock, you've got to be here on this street. Um, and I, you know, turned up and there were, you know, 
120, 150 people, some of whom I hadn't seen for, for years and years and years. And it was totally surreal. Wow. I was still quite, the six months following, um, this was about six months on from when I was ill in Congo. My health hadn't been good throughout that. So I'd been on my ride up through France, for instance, winter was coming and I was getting these incredible like stomach cramps every now and then. I'd have to, I remember one particular day when I basically just kind of veered off the road in a village and fell into someone's woodshed. And then about 10 minutes later, I kind of came round and there was just this elderly French couple standing over me, not wondering what to do with me. So I, I wasn't particularly well. But I turned up at this this homecoming party, you know, with a beard down to my tits and, you know, hair down to my shoulders. I looked a right state, to be honest. Um, and it was strange how quickly I felt kind of normal back among people again, initially at least. It was over the coming days that, you know, the kind of the weird you know, itch of wanting to move came back. and So you got, like, wanderlust almost immediately afterwards? In Yeah, in the, in the so I guess a couple of weeks on, you know, the novelty wow. of having a comfy bed each night wore off pretty quick. And I needed to find a job to, you know, to earn some money, so I picked up the first job I could find. Um, and, you know, it's not the sort of job that I think, I, you know, I was going to do long term, but it was, it was just enough to get me back on my feet. What did you do? Uh, I sold luxury tours to China for a travel company. <laughs> And so I talked to clients saying, well, exactly. You know, I talked to clients saying, oh, you know, you've got to go to this place. It's great. And they say, what was your experience like then? I said, well, the ground's good and firm. You can put a tent wherever you want. But, you know, the, 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 the Hyatt will probably be comfortable. You'll be fine. Um, yeah, it was, it was, that was uh, not necessarily the, the best fit for me as a job. But soon after that, I started planning the next trip and started writing these books. And, and sort of since then, I've kind of turned that into a career. So immediately you sort of understood when you returned, like, this is not a one-off. This is something you're just going to continue to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, people started asking me to give presentations about the trip I'd been on, you know, sort of photo slideshows, I guess. And I started doing more and more of those at, you know, to village halls and clubs and festivals and schools and businesses. And that slowly became like about half of my living. And I realized oh, I could do this for a job. You know, this could be this could be a living um, and enable me to carry on, you know, taking on challenges. So since then, there's, you know, there's there's always something in the pipeline. Do some sort of journey, come back, relate the story, write about it, repeat. Now, when you start up again, are you is there any hesitation about like the length of the trip like that four year thing even though i'm sure it must have been a fascinating and wonderful experience there there had to be a little bit of a hesitation of committing to that much of your life mm. again i well i mean the longest i've done since then is 8 months so mm. yeah it's yeah. It's, it's a lot different and the last couple have been sort of 2 or 3 months but it was um, was it because of that four year one where you're like that's a little much well you just yeah you get a bit more settled or also now i've started to kind of build a career you don't want to totally put everything on pause for a huge amount of time again you mean by build a career, the writing? The, the yeah, books? the writing and the speaking. And, yeah. you know, it's not like I have, you know, a, a, a monthly paycheck um, or, a, you know, salary, a pension, anything like that. So you kind of got to keep feeding the beast. And so for the speeches, like, what are you doing? Are you, like, posting up at a theater and people come to see you talk? Uh, I do some at theaters, um, a lot at schools. Uh, ones for businesses will be at uh, conferences or they just want someone to come in for the afternoon to kind of, you know, spark up their team or, you know, a, a real variety, all sorts of different events. You would be um, the last person I would want to have come to talk <laughs> because I was like, these people are going to quit and they're going to go wander the world. And I'm going to have no workforce. I've spoken to, to a handful of CEOs about that. And um, one, maybe charitably, but I think he was right. He said, um, you know, if I kind of said what you said as a joke. 
And he said, well, you know what, if, if, I've got a member, if I've got a member of staff, if I've got an employee who wants to go away for that huge amount of time, then they probably shouldn't be working for me. You know, it's mm. like, you know that's not going to be the most motivated person. But, I, but I'm not there to, you know, say, hey, you know, quit your job and fuck off for years on a bicycle. I'm there to try and, I mean, with businesses, it's different, different talks, different events, it's all different. But with businesses, I'm there to, to kind of take some of the lessons about resilience, um, you know, ambition etc from what i've been doing uh, and trying to apply that to to their lives to their to their setting but isn't aren't those lessons only learned through the experiences i mean i would imagine they're definitely best learned through experiences yeah but i think you can in the same way that um i mean one of the biggest genres of literature is self-help right mm-hmm. and that's just reading about it i it's, think most of that is nonsense though I, I think, in that, like, literally, when I look at, like, self-help books and self-help people and mentors and stuff, there's a large percentage, more than half, that's nonsense. At the risk of insulting a few people I know, I totally agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then again, I haven't read, you know, I haven't read those books. And also, I, I haven't read all of them, no. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> just, but just I've read that. enough bullshit where I'm like, God. Yeah, well, there, I, there's, a, there's a huge tendency out there for people to kind of take on the persona of a guru essentially yeah you know, and there's so many charlatans out there there are so many you know it's like with a lot of um esoteric pursuits and alternative mm-hmm. things you know there's 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 things that are rooted in in fact or that are kind of you know veering that way and there are things that are i mean like uh mediums for instance yeah i mean I, i've got i don't mind saying it i don't care how many people are listening i've got no time for that because as far as I'm concerned, they're either, I think the two ways they describe it are they're either open eye, which means they know they're conning everyone, or they're shut eye, which means that they, you know, they genuinely believe what they're doing. And, and you know, that's, that's a different thing. I'm kind of fine with that. It's just I don't think they're right. <laughs> yeah, um, I have a friend who went to a medium, and it's kind of a hilarious story because he goes, he, he knew everything about my grandmother, knew everything about this. I go, don't you know everything about your grandmother? <laughs> What the fuck is the point of someone telling you some things you already know? Yeah, that are and on your go, Facebook page. Did you, is, do you think that it's possible that these were leading questions and that through these leading <clears> questions, <throat> they sort of talked you into giving them the answers? And you can see the look on his face when he was kind of resisting but realizing that I might be right but didn't want to admit that he got ho- hosed. I think there's a, a lot of people just want to believe it. Yes. And that's also totally understandable. You know, it's, it's the same, like, from my perspective yeah. with, um, you know, belief in afterlife. You know, people want right. to believe that because it's comforting and it totally makes sense to want to believe it. I personally don't. But You, you know, don't believe in any that. sort of afterlife? I don't, no. But um, do you disbelieve? Meaning? I don't believe in it either, but I don't disbelieve in well, it. Well, I can never know that it's not. Right. But I guess the the burden of proof is on people who have come up with this idea because there's nothing to substantiate it. But there's a long history of human understanding that there's something else besides what we experience in this realm. And I think a lot of that has to do most likely through either the consumption of psychedelic compounds or through ritual practices like holotropic breathing or something where it gives them the sense that maybe what you see is only part of the picture and then there's this feeling when someone dies like they're not there anymore mm-hmm. like have you you've ever been around a dead body i have yeah it's a weird feeling right it's like it's it's not just that they're dead it's not just that they're not breathing anymore it's an emptiness. they're not there yeah yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's hard to explain, but the first time I ever saw a dead body was my grandfather. Uh, it was an open casket, 
And I remember immediately thinking like, oh, that's not him. He's not there. Yeah. Like he's not there. It's not as simple as, well, it's also weird because they had him made up and shit. You know, mm-hmm. they put makeup on you, which is very odd. Yeah. But it's this very clear feeling that he's gone. And so there's this thought, well, where did he go? Did he go somewhere else? Is there a place where you go? Mm-hmm. You know, but, And that's a totally yeah. understandable thing to, to, to think. And, and to... You know, to to kind of experiment with the idea of, but right. I suppose it can never be proven. So it's kind of a moot point, anyway. I guess. I guess. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting yeah. to discuss. I don't disbelieve, but I don't believe. But I, I also think that's a slightly different thing to to, to mediums. Oh um, yeah. And I'm a huge fan of. Well, uh, sadly, he died last year. I think the amazing Randy. Yes. Yeah. yeah James and Randy. Darren had... Brown. Various people who, yes. who who sort of you know unlock or rather give away the secret some of the secrets of cold reading and show you just how easy it is to manipulate people's belief um yes yeah darren is very open about that and there's a guy named banachek who i've had on the podcast before as well as as darren and banachek is the first guy that i ever met that openly talked about the techniques that he used he's like i'm not going to tell you the techniques but i'm going to tell you this is bullshit yeah I am tricking these people mm. into thinking that I can read into them and find out about their past and find out about their life. It's just bullshit. Well, Randy went to, um, you know, the uh, sort of big evangelical churches where they mm-hmm. have um, you know, faith healers and, yeah. and people, you know, <laughs> contacting the other side. And he he went there, and I think I think I'm remembering this right. Either his his like one of his accomplices essentially just went there with a little shortwave radio and just scanned through the settings until he found the feed to the sort of pastor's ear yeah feeding the information that someone else was researching online for these these sort of unsuspecting audience members unwitting audience members um which is you know it's hilarious and it's also deeply disturbing because it's deeply people disturbing get, you know taken for thousands and you know they they can it's just taking advantage of the most vulnerable people, and I've yeah. got no time for that. And there's only one step removed from that to a lot of these motivational people. Because my, my feeling on these motivational people is they're ta- a lot of them are taking advantage of the fact that some people have this longing for discipline and structure and, and some sort – like they've experienced moments in their life where things are going well, and then things fall apart, or they self-sabotage, or they mm-hmm. start drinking or gambling, or whatever the pro- their problem is. But these people that are motivating these people, these people that they're, they're charging exorbitant amounts of money for some structure that they put together, they want these folks to follow. But then when you look into their lives, the people that are the motivational people, most of them haven't done shit. Like all they're doing is motivating people, which yeah. doesn't, you know, like if you want to have a, a conversation about how to invest with Warren Buffett, well, that makes sense to me. Like here's a man who's spent his life investing successfully in businesses. He's he's very yeah. well versed in that, and he can give you some understanding of the practices that he uses. But if you're going to talk to someone who's m- trying to motivate you for success, and his only success is to tricking people into coming to see him motivate people for success and charging them exorbitant amounts of money for it, well, then I don't like that. Well, it's the same as the irony of of Trump having written the art of the deal, um, or rather having had someone ghostwrite it for him. You know, Trump, who was just born into a huge amount of money and by all accounts just slowly lost it over years and years and years. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's 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 far too easy for people to uh, uh, abuse other people's sort of good faith. We're, we're, we're yeah. generally credulous creatures. You know, we want to believe stuff. We want things to believe in. Well, um, we also don't, you know, there's there's so much uncertainty about the future. And so there's this 
longing for someone to hold our hand. Someone please show me. Someone please give me a guide. Some please tell me the steps to follow. Yeah. And and when people see that people have this longing, they take advantage of it and they they try to get these people to pay money for these secrets. If you sign up now, I will give you the secrets of how you can be, become successful. And you're sitting there in your shitty apartment. You're like, fuck, I want to be successful. That's Scientology, gonna, isn't it? It's similar. Same thing. Well, I, don't, I think that's more in like how to organize your life. But, it, but it's similar. It's, yeah, similar. it's I mean, secrets that you unlock yeah. to success. Yeah. I mean, written by one of the worst science fiction writers <laughs> ever. Have you ever read some of his stuff? I, I don't plan to. Oh, my um, God. Well, I've had um, uh, the, the guy who's the uh, head guy of Scientology. What the fuck's his name again? David Miscavige. Yeah, I had his, his, his uh, dad. Ron Miscavige on, and he explained to me how he got his son into it, and the whole, the whole deal behind it. It's this fucking fascinating, because it deals with those very questions. Like it deals with psychology. It deals with like, the the longing for answers in this purely uncertain, open-ended life that we exist in. Mm. And so many people have that desire for structure and for someone to come along and tell them that everything is going to be okay if you follow these rules. Which is obviously not true. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, um, you know, when I'm billed as a quote unquote motivational speaker, I actually don't like that phrasing. I would prefer, you know, inspirational. Um, I tend yeah. to, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a, a, an entertaining storytelling exercise, but with, you know, certain themes that people can you know, take away if they, if they want to. But I, I've never liked the idea of ramming down people's throats a bullet, point, bullet pointed step by step of, you know, how to be better or more proactive or more motivated or anything like that because I, I i think as you're saying it's, it's quite often disingenuous most of the time i know a guy who does it who used to be a terrible comedian and then he became a motivational guy and now he's much more successful at that but it's just so strange and sad to watch these people buy into his nonsense like you know he's not successful like except at taking people and getting them to pay a lot of money to mm -hmm teach them how to be successful which is fucking strange yeah it's like a it's like a shitty pyramid scheme it is in a way but it's you know it's a confidence game you're 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 playing upon people's desire for answers that don't exist i mean you can motivate people like there's a lot of people don't get me wrong there's a lot of people out there that are super successful that can tell you how they did it mm. and there's a lot of benefit in that there's great benefit in that but most of those people are not charging you for that I mean, they might write a book about it or they, yeah. you know, maybe they do a podcast on you know, how to succeed a business or something like that. But they're good at it. They're actually they actually have experience. But there's a fucking whole industry and online because of social media, the barrier for entry is so small that you see so many people with these. They all they have. Everything is motivational. All their posts are motivational. Like, surely you have to have some other shit to say other than motivating people. This is weird. Yeah. I mean, I try to focus on telling stories. You know, like if you, if you read those, for instance, yeah. you might find some inspiration within them. But hopefully it's just going to be interesting. You know? Well, what you're doing is, I mean, obviously you have these super unusual life experiences that you can relay. And what the, I mean, that's my, my thing about it is like, God, if I heard those, I would be very tempted to go and, and want some of those experiences for myself. Well, a lot, of, a lot of my experiences have been sort of how not to. Right. Well, that's how you learn, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Learn from my mistakes. Actually, I think that's, that's always valid as well. You know, I, it's, it's a lot 
easier, I think, to take something on board from someone who says, this is what I did and it went horribly wrong and yeah. this is why I wouldn't do it again like that than to say, I did this and I'm fantastic and it went really well and you're a different person and it might be the same for you. Well, speaking of horribly wrong, let's talk about your most recent one because uh, this is what led you here and this is, this is a wild experience that you just returned from and um, just so tell people what you've done. Sure. Uh, so I, I've been planning for almost a year to go to a region of Siberia called Yakutia, which is I mean, it's the largest administrative area in the world. Um, so it's one region of Russia. It's almost the same size as India. I think it's about 96% the size of India, uh, but only one million people. So it, it's massive and empty. And it's far north. Uh, about half of it is north of the Arctic Circle. And there's there's one large city, but outside that there are scattered some remote and very remote communities, um, and there, for the most part, um, there there are plenty of sort of you know crumbling, near abandoned industrial towns from the Soviet era as well. But there are there are lots of scattered small villages of indigenous Siberian peoples, particularly the Sakha, who are the the largest uh, ethnicity in in the region. Um, and then there are smaller peoples like the Iveni, the Evenki, who traditionally herded reindeer. There's all sorts of people scattered across this massive area. And I wanted to, to head out there. It, it's the it's also the coldest inhabited place on Earth. Um, so the, the, the record recorded low, and Jamie might be able to confirm this, but a place called Verkhoyansk. I can't remember the exact temperature, and it's in Celsius anyway, but about minus 67.3, something like that. <laughs> Um, and that's inhabited. People live there. And so every winter it's super cold and people survive in that. And they used to survive, many of them in a sort of nomadic sense, living in, in sort of skin tents, um, reindeer, you know, hide teepees, essentially. Um, so I wanted to get out there, experience some elements, not in the total depths of winter, but in sort of February, March. April um, of that extreme cold. Isn't February the total depths of winter? Um, I think January's their coldest time. What is February? They, well, I mean, I was prepared for minus 50 Celsius, which is sort of minus, I guess it's about minus 60 Fahrenheit. They hit the same at minus 40. 40, yeah. But yeah. because the, and then each it degree is different, it gets yeah. confusing straight away. Um, so I wanted to get out there, experience this cold, and, and just meet some of these people scattered around and just kind of see, you know, see what their lives are like and also see if they're changing with the, you know, if their lives, their sort of traditional ways of life are being threatened by the the climate changing you know in in um summer last summer when you might remember those it was uh, i mean it was all over the news for a while perhaps less so in america because you guys got your own wildfires here but um an island in greece evia was was on fire like the whole island essentially really bad wildfires but at the same time an area the size of belgium in yakutia was burning uh, or, or collectively all the different wildfires at the same time um so they you know they have crazy bad wildfires out there uh also just close to verkhoyansk that town with the record cold they had a, a record arctic high of um 39 point something degrees celsius again i that's about 100 and yeah that's high it's about, it's about the same as it's here today i think yeah um and all the way up there yeah in the arctic circle um that's so insane. yeah i just wanted to go and check it out see what it was like so i you know planned to hike um a few hundred miles along frozen rivers which in winter for about three months get sort of plowed and turned into ice roads um, Zimnik or Zimniki as they call them there a bit like your sort of ice road truckers I guess I don't yes. know but as you're on the river the river's frozen perhaps two meters thick uh, and towards the top on the frozen sea ice uh, and to hike up to this town called Tixi up on the north coast um, it's a port town um, but I arrived I flew in on the 21st of February 
and the world changed a lot in the in the sort of three or four days after that. Um, day after I arrived, uh, Russian forces marched across the border where they'd been massing, you know, up to I think about 140,000 troops by the time I flew out. And, and when I flew out, you know, with hindsight, it all seems kind of stupid to have gone, maybe foolhardy. But at the time, basically the entire world, except for presumably Putin, the US intelligence and UK intelligence, which both seem to think something's going to happen. But all the world's media, all commentators, all pundits were saying, no, this is just a bluff. You know, this is just Putin trying to, you know, scare NATO into concessions, you know, to get more promises that NATO won't spread it, you know, that Ukraine won't join NATO, whatever else. Um, but they marched, they marched across the border. Um, and two days later, they formally, inv- formally, <laughs> a formal invasion. They, uh, they, they, you know, launched their full scale nationwide invasion, marched into Kiev, bombed everything. Um, and I was so far away from all this, you know, the, um, Batagai, the small town where I started hiking up in the Arctic. Um, that is geographically the same distance from Vancouver as it is from Kiev. You know, so it's just really, really far away. I was closer to the North Pole. I was east of Pyongyang. I was on the same time zone as Central Australia, just really, really far away. And I kind of thought about it and I thought, well, A, I'm here and it's going to be interesting. You know, I'm possibly one of, if not the last tourists in Russia, certainly out in the east. Um, and I've got this almost unique but accidental opportunity to see this country and the lives of normal people, ordinary citizens, as what seems to be a horrific, you know, potentially the brink, the precipice of World War Three starts to unfold. And so I thought, right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry on with this trek, but I'll just try and keep across, you know, information. Um, and, but as soon as I got to Batagai, it's a short flight from the capital of the region up to Batagai on an old Antonov twin prop sort of Soviet plane. And from there onwards, my you know I couldn't get any phone signal. I basically the only real information I could get was local state media. I passed a village perhaps once a week, um, and you turn on the. I mean the most the most insane thing was turning on the. And you know, I mean you'll be aware of this, I'm sure. But you turn on the local news out there, and they're talking about Ukraine on their news segments, and every second or third sentence will have the word fascism or Nazism, and they were slowly just drip feeding drip fleeting is the wrong word they were just gushing this false information out into their public space and loads of people believed everything they heard totally believed everything you know the i remember while i was still in the capital just the day after i arrived the the you know the troops had gone into the donbass this disputed territory in the east that they're sort of annexing and that evening i was in some guy's uh, sort of cabin just outside town i you know we'd met and went for drinks with some other people and he said hey, let's go back to ours for some drinks uh and this guy i'll call him anatole i don't want to say his name but um he he started dicing up some horse ribs to cook us some some sort of you know peppering them and everything and he asked me what i thought about ukraine this is really early days um and i said well you know i don't i have to be careful with what i was saying i don't know that much about it but it you know it seems like this is going to get really serious and i'm also aware that when i turn on my phone and look at the news apps the information i get from the bbc or the guardian or whatever else is totally different from what i see here and of course i knew all this but i was sort of couching it in terms that gave him the chance to kind of you know i, was, I wasn't i didn't want right. to preach yeah um and he said yeah well you know it's great because um you know vladimir putin is is making russia great again and this is this is Russian land and it, it belongs to Russia and um, those Ukrainians are all Nazis anyway. Um, and, you know, we're going to uh, they're, they're performing genocide on Russian peoples. 
And the thing I found cr- like craziest about all this, not just the fact that he was so precisely parroting Putin's propaganda, you know, which I had assumed beforehand people would be taking with a pinch of salt. But the fact that, I mean, this guy was Sacha. He's not a Slav. He's not a white Russian. This guy is from a people who about 400 years ago were brutally, aggressively colonized by a sort of militaristic, expansionist, czarist Russia who spread into the area and and you know, and just took over. And I just thought somehow, with hindsight naively, that these people that were from a, you know, sort of ethnically different background heritage might not be quite so sold on the cause of Russian nationalism, which is essentially what Putin used to sell the invasion in the first place. Mm. Um, but no, he was totally he was totally sold on it. And then just as the following kind of weeks unfolded, as I started hiking, the war ramped up. I only got little snippets of information. It was very hard to know what was actually going on. I just met more and more people with to be frank, a complete gamut of opinions. You know, I, I met lots of people who, like him, were just bullish and quite, you know, hawkish. Yeah, you know, we'll take back Ukraine. It belongs to Russia. They're all fascists. Um, and then I met people who quietly, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say any names, but people who, like, one-on-one would quietly confide, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure about this. You know, I, I don't quite believe everything I'm being told. Or even some people who, who you know, said, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to be Russian. I'm embarrassed about this. You know, I, I, I don't feel like I'm part of this country now. Um, but what, what was your feeling going through? So you're, you're going through this trip. You have no idea that this is going to happen. It starts happening while you're there. Mm. And then you find yourself accidentally involved in, in a sense that you're a, a foreign observer trapped in this land where all this crazy shit is going down. Mm. Are you thinking you have to get out of there? Are you thinking you you are a part of this now? You're going to document what you're seeing, and this will uh, add to whatever you're writing in the future. A bit, a bit of both, really. Um, it you know it occurred to me a bunch of times: should I be leaving? Should I be getting out of here? You know, just days after the invasion, uh, flights you know Russian flights to Europe were all you know the airlines were sanctioned; they couldn't fly into European airport so my flight you know it hadn't yet been formally cancelled but it wasn't going to happen I knew that much so getting out was already going to be complicated um, but I didn't feel I didn't feel personally threatened and perhaps I should have um, it you know I, I, I suppose I felt like I, you know I'm essentially a neutral observer but of course I wasn't because I'm British and Britain very quickly took a stance along with the EU and America you know pro-Ukraine stance and it's great you know here wandering around Austin you see Ukrainian flags everywhere and after finally getting home you know I went to little villages in the countryside and the church has a Ukrainian flag hoisted on top of the flagpole you know the the the, the west for want of a better term really like took up the cause of Ukraine very very quickly and I suppose that made me not a neutral observer but a representative of the opposition if not the enemy um, but I've been you know I've been I've been in trouble with the authorities in Russia, in Russia before in, on previous occasions. I've been through the Russian court system a couple of times. How so? Um, in 2017, I was skiing through the Ural Mountains, which is they, they, they kind of divide European Russia from Siberia. Um, and uh, came into a town for a resupply after a, a couple of months out in the mountains. And the police uh, arrested me and my friend and... Um, and <laughs> so we were on business visas because the longest tourist visa you could get back then was only 30 days. 
we needed you know, three months plus. So we got business visas and uh, they, said you're, <laughs> they said you're committing tourism while traveling on a business visa. So we were taken to court for committing tourism, you know, for, for, for sort of abusing the But did you explain grounds. that that is your business? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, did that yeah, work? They didn't go for it. But I mean, the fine was, you know, 20 pounds or something. Well, you months. have books, though. I would imagine. Well, like... I didn't yet have. Oh, yeah. OK. But I mean, I had a, a, a website. Um, but then, you know, later we got a border infraction. We, we were kayaking down a river on the border of Russia and Kazakhstan. And it turns out where the river is the border, you're not allowed to be. And then months later in Georgia, um, we, we were up in the sort of mountains of Georgia. And <laughs> I mean, it's dumb, really. We used Google Maps to tell us how to get to this town, Gori, which incidentally is where Stalin was born. Um, and uh, Google Maps said, yeah, you come down out of this valley, out of the mountains, into this valley, uh, go up, up river. There's a river through the valley. Go up river for about a mile, cross the bridge, and then carry on on the road, and you'll be there you know, this evening. Thought, great, easy. We went down, and then at the bridge, there were Georgian soldiers, or police, police, I think, and they said, no, it's closed. And they wouldn't explain why. And I, you know, I had some Russian by this point, so you know, I could have understood if they explained, but they didn't. They just said, no, it's closed, just go away. And so I was kind of put it into Google again and it said, yeah, it's going to be, you know, like a day and a half. It's like a long, longer way around. And we were sort of after it, you know, keen for a rest. And I thought, well, the river doesn't look that deep. So we went, um, you know, a few hundred meters downstream and just pushed our bikes across. It was like ankle deep. Got to the other side, scrambled up a bank, got on the road, started cycling and thought, yeah, you know, finally we've got one over on the authorities. It's always been a bit of a headache. And uh, about 30 seconds later, a military jeep sped up behind us and sort of pulled over in front of us and a soldier climbed out. And he had, the first thing I noticed was he had the Russian tricolor, the flag, on his arm. And I thought, well, that's strange because the border is about 50 miles north of here. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, what are you doing here? Which isn't the right thing to say when a Russian soldier arrests you. Um, he said, uh, uh, this is South Ossetia, which is that there was a short five-day war in 2008 Seven, 2008, uh, and Russia just sort of invaded and annexed part of Georgia. And it turned out the river was the border, and we had unwittingly just crossed into it. Um, so we you know, got, the, I mean, the Rus- it's part of Russia, essentially, but it's set up like the Donbass is, is already being as a kind of a little puppet state. Um, and when they were interrogating us under the frowning portrait of Putin, um, they they were saying, like, you know, why did you do this? You know, you, like, it's a border. What, you know, why have you violated our sovereign territory? And I said, look, we, you know, we just, it was just the maps on our phone. And the, the guy from the FSB, formerly the KGB, said, ah, Google Maps, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, ah, it's an American company. I said, yeah. And he said, well, America doesn't recognize um, South Ossetia. So, th- so the Google Maps has just told me to go through this disputed territory. Jesus, Google. Um, <laughs> I, I, later I looked at it, and there was a tiny little dotted line. But the route, it just said go through there. Oh, wow. um, but I said, who does recognize it? And he said, well, you know, the South Ossetians do and Russia does. I was like, sure, that's kind of a given. And I said, anyone else? He said, yeah, uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua. I was like, it's a good company. <laughs> and, and he said, also, have you heard of Nauru? And it's a tiny little Pacific Island nation of about 10,000 people. They're the only other people who back then at least formally recognized South Ossetia. Um, I guess Belarus might do now. Um, anyway, so, you know, I was familiar with Russian, you know, I, I know that being arrested in Russia for some minor sort of administrative uh, infraction isn't, you know, isn't necessarily a huge deal. At both of those times, I was given a small fine and sent on my way. Um, but this time, you know, this winter, uh, after about three weeks of hiking, I arrived at this town. It was the first, 
Let's go. The only can, town. Can I on stop the route. you? Yeah. So they they did they let you go? Uh, in South Ossetia. Yeah. Once they have they pulled you over, like how do you get out of this? Uh, so well, we were in a cell for a night, and then in the court, um, where <laughs> the judge said, "Is there anything you want to say?" And I said, well, I'm really hungry. They haven't really fed us. And the judge started screaming at the police. and said, get them some food straight away. So, you know, it was all friendly and fine. They then, at sunset, marched us through all this kind of, you know, um, razor wire and concrete defences and unexploded ordnance signs uh, and handed us over to the Georgian authorities. Do you have to explain what you're doing? Do you, do you... The Georgians were across it because it had been put out on the FSB sort of you know, communications. So they knew that, um, that that two tourists had been had got in trouble. And, and sure enough, on, on the other side of the border, there were people from like the British Embassy, the Georgian police, the tourism industry, the Ministry of the Interior. So we had this long debrief. But you're not supposed to be there, right? You're not so. We well, certainly like, I, like, we crossed the border, not knowing it was a border. So it was totally innocent, but we crossed the border uh, illegally, yeah, because it is a it is a border. Um, and how would you be able to cross it legally? Well, I, only from Russia. Only from Russia. Yeah. So that area you where could. you crossed is it's just illegal to cross in that area. Yeah. Yeah. So did you explain what yeah. you do and yeah, how yeah, did I, they respond to that? I explained. I mean, they, I think they they very quickly understood that you know we weren't spies. This is. Five, six, five years ago, right. they very quickly understood that you know we weren't spies. It wasn't obviously a, quite such a heightened time of heightened tensions like now. Right. Um, but now, when you got in trouble with the Russian authorities, it was a much more serious issue. Yeah. Well, this time I didn't, and I stand by this. I didn't do anything wrong, but they were, it seemed, quite quickly looking for a way to get me out of there. Um, so. It was known where I was at all times. Although there was only one settlement every week, this uh, river, the, the road, the Zimnik on the river I was hiking along, um, saw perhaps 15 trucks a day um, uh, hauling coal from a port at the river mouth, like hundreds of kilometers away, all the way down to Batagai, the town where I started hiking to, to you know, sort of fuel the, the, the region with a little power station. Um, and so people were clearly, as I found out later, reporting to the authorities where I was at any given time. Uh, the two villages I passed through before reaching the first town, you know, it was quickly sort of by the village elders, I think, sort of, because there's no presence of authorities in these villages. They're tiny, you know, three, 400 people. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was passed on where I was. So when I approached Ustkuiga, this, this town, which used to have five or 6,000 residents, now there's like, Five or six hundred. So basically, there's not many people just living scattered among the ruins of this kind of. <laughs> on the north side of the town, there's a cement factory that was built and completed just before the Soviet Union fell apart. So it never produced a single sack of cement because there was no longer any reason to live in this like desolate, you know, sort of throwaway town in the middle of nowhere. The Soviets were really keen to kind of evenly populate this huge expanse of land that they owned. So they built sort of industrial settlements all over the place. Um, anyway, as I approached Uskwiga, um, a police jeep was waiting for me a few miles outside town. Um, and they said, get into the jeep for a chat. And I said, oh, that's fine. You know, and actually, that morning had been my coldest morning. It was minus 48 or 49 degrees Celsius that morning, which I think is about 55 Fahrenheit. Um, and so my feet were still numb. And I was only too happy to get in the car and have a chat with them in the warmth. And they asked me all these questions for about an hour. You know, what are you in doing Russian. here? Um, yeah, so th this was in my very pidgin Russian. These guys didn't speak a word of English. Uh, what are you doing here? You know, why are you visiting? And I just said, I'm here. I'm interested in the the culture, the traditions, the background, the winter, the wildlife. You know, I'm a tourist. Um, and they made me sign a document promising to obey the rules of the country while I was in it, which fair enough. 
Um, but then I, I can, they drove off. Well, they took selfies with me and then drove off. Um, and then we can, I continued into the town. And they the took next selfies? Day, oh, everyone takes selfies in Russia. Like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, they even refer to any picture with a person in it as a selfie. It doesn't need to be taken by oneself. That's an English oh. word that's just bled through into Russian for a picture. Interesting. Um, so, and again, selfies, I found out later that pe- people were taking selfies with me, you know, truckers along the way. And then these were popping up on various kind of uh, Instagram accounts in the area that lots of people followed. Um, so, you know, people were totally aware of where I was, what I was doing. And again, I had nothing to hide, sort of. We'll come to that in a minute. Um, but uh, in Uskwiga, they came and found me. They came and knocked on the door in the place that I was staying. I was there for three nights. And they said, right, come to the police station for um, registration. I said, that's fine. Again, no problem. And in the police station, slowly it became clear that they were giving me a fine. And when I asked, what's the fine for? And I wasn't initially concerned. Um, what's the fine for? And they said, oh, you're, um, you're conducting journalism while traveling on a tourist visa. You can now get, well, briefly, could I guess you can't now get a 90 day tourist visa to Russia as of recently. So at this time I was on the correct visa, a tourist visa. But they said, you're conducting journalism. I said, I'm not. And they said, no, you're a journalist. Um, We've seen on your website, you've written for the BBC, which is true, but travel pieces. You've written for these newspapers, again, travel travel articles based on essentially tourism. Um, And they said, well, that's journalism here. And we also hear you've been talking to people. And I said, well... Yeah, that's not illegal. Uh, And um, you've been taking photographs. Again, no problem. Um, But they then suddenly claimed um, that I'd been asking provocative questions about the, as they call it, the special operation. Because the war, within Russia, the war is not a war. It's illegal to call it a war. Mm. It's a special operation. It's part of this kind of strange kind of, you know... Nothing is true. <laughs> so are people reporting you along the way? I mean, did you ascertain how this got to these soldiers? Uh, well, they, they knew I was, you know, the route I was following was, you know, along this river, over some hills to another river, and then up to this town on the coast. And so there was no secret that I was going to come through Ustkwiga. And uh, they they knew what day it was going to be because someone had probably reported seeing my tent, you know, 20 miles down the road the previous night when, where I'd camped. Um, and I think... I mean, it became quite clear that they had... So we spoke for a while, and eventually when they started making these accusations, I said, look, right, I don't really understand exactly what you're saying. I need you to find a translator. And so they found some guy who spoke a bit of English, and um, he translated as best he could, and they basically come up with... They they sort of fabricated witnesses who said, yeah, he was asking about the war in Ukraine. He called it a war. Um, You know, he he was trying to sort of provoke, you know, difficult conversations Mm. and it really wasn't the case and frankly wherever I went almost one of the first questions people would ask about me is what do you think of the situation in Ukraine because whether or not they believe what they're being told by their news they are aware because the news talks about quote unquote the fake news that the West is putting out they're aware that I might have access to that so they want to know what I think Um, so they they kind of came up with these witnesses and said right like you've got to pay this fine um, and then you can go and I thought, right, well, it's a £20 fine, $30, and then I can go. There's no point staying here all day. I might as well just like sign the papers and go. Um, and so I did that. But the, the guy who they got to translate for me, he walked out with me when we were all done. And as we were walking down the street, he said, so when they were on the phone to HQ back in Yakutsk, the capital, um, I overheard the people on the other end of the phone saying that these guys should pin two administrative offences on me so that I can be deported 
Um, and I'd resisted. I'd pushed back quite hard saying, you know, this is not what I'm doing. I'm not doing journalism. This is not true or whatever. And I'm glad I did. Um, had I not, then they possibly would have deported me then and there. Um, but I was free to carry on. So I carried on about another four weeks, you know, got up onto the tundra, visited some reindeer herders, you know, got to some very remote settlements and spent the final sort of 10 days hiking on, on the frozen Arctic Ocean, you know, camping out, you know, under some of the most incredible starscapes and you know, northern lights. It was beautiful, a really good time. Um, I arrived in Tixie, this port town at the end, which used to have, I think, like 15,000 people, now has about 5,000 people. It's another one of these, the, the Russians have a phrase for this, like a, a dying town, a town more dead than alive. Um, and uh, on arrival in Tixie, someone who I'd met on the road weeks earlier, who I got in touch with on arrival, he said, you know, get in touch, we'll, we'll catch up. Um, he told me that the FSB, the KGB, wanted to, to talk to me. And I thought, right, well, just take the bull by the horns. I'll just go to their building and I'll say, I hear you want to talk to me. I'm here. And um, they were a bit taken aback by that. And they said, can you come back at this time tomorrow? So I did. And um, they said, they, it felt like an interrogation, but it eventually turned out it was just this standard procedure. They asked me these questions, who I was, the name of my family members, the history of my family. Did any of my ancestors ever, were they ever in the British forces? Do I have any political beliefs? Was I in the army? Just all these kind of standard suspicious questions. Uh, and it went on about two, three hours. And when we were finally done, the guy said, okay, well, that's it. You're, you're free to go. And I was like, oh, great. He said, make sure you visit the museum. There's a mammoth skeleton. You know, have a good time. Good luck to you. I went back to where I was staying and um, I was recording. So I, I took with me a little Zoom, like a little dictaphone. You know, a lot of people use them for podcasts, I think. And for, for another podcast with, with a friend that'll surface in a, in a month or so, I'd been recording my experiences in my own voice along the way of the cold, the people I met, the odd conversation with other people. Um, but naturally with what was going on and people telling me of their opinions about Ukraine, in my own little recordings in my tent at night, sometimes I get a little sort of political, I guess. Mm. And af after that um, encounter with the uh, in Ustkwiga, when they came to my door, these policemen the first time, sorry, four weeks back, I know we're jumping around. Um, when they came to my door, I was recording on my dictaphone and I went to answer the door and just slipped it in my pocket. And they said, right, come to the police station now. And so I went, but it was still recording. So I had a live mic throughout this whole pre police process. Yeah. And the first thing they did in the police station was take my phone, turn it off. So I wasn't recording. And so little did they know there was this hot mic in my pocket. Um, so after that was done, I got back to where I was staying. I kind of, in my own words, said what had happened, took the little micro SD card out. Um, and then unscrewed a plug adapter, you know, from like a British plug to a Russian mm -hmm. plug, unscrewed that, wrapped the SD card up in a little scrap of white paper, slotted it in there, screwed it back up. And it's like, you know, I don't want to lose this. It's not really a huge problem, but best just to hide it, have it safe. Um, up in Tixie, I sort of recorded my final thoughts uh, again, and I had this little SD card. It was just on the table. Um, and another one, I was worried, you know, my journal, that my diary that I've been writing in each day, I was worried that that might get taken, you know, because slowly the, with the villages I passed through towards the end, you know, it, it was made very clear that the authorities were waiting for me in Tixie. And I thought, well, you know, that might get seized, not the end of the world if it does, if I, with my GoPro, take a picture of every single page and I can hide that little SD card in the same plug socket. But when the knock came on my door in Tixie, 
um, I'd been asleep. I'd actually fallen asleep reading uh, Kafka, <laughs> um, uh, the trial, this guy getting arrested and not knowing what it's all about. Um, they, they came to the door and everything was just kind of out. And they said, um, it was the police again. They said, can you come to the station for registration? And I said, again, well, this is you know, a little ominous, but registration, fine. I'd already, you know, the day before spoken to the FSB. I knew everything was fine. And in the station, um, it quickly became clear. Well, after about an hour of just this long asking lots of questions, I said, well, can I go now? And they said, no, 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 you can't go. And that's when I understood I'm under arrest and this is maybe a little bit more serious. And once again, they, well, they said, who have you spoken to? Who have you met in Tixie? And I said, um, well, I met this guy uh, who I'd met on the road who, it's a small town, so I, I didn't want to lie to them. I thought best just to say who I'd met. So I met this guy and I've met this other bloke um, and they didn't know who either of these people were and they were asking questions about who they were. And without leaving the room, without making a call, without doing any texting, me having just explained to them who these people were and they didn't know who they were, they quickly said, right, well, both those people are, um, are providing witness to say that you have been conducting journalism and asking questions about Ukraine. So, you know, they, they sort of essentially got me to provide them with false witnesses. Um, and this process went on for hours. They got an English teacher to translate for us. And as the hours passed, the English teacher became more and more fed up. She was meant to be, I think, I think someone with a disease uh, in the town. There was a, a bake sale to raise money for him. And she was meant to be cooking cakes, cupcakes with her daughter that evening. And, you know, I'd ruined this because it was already, you know, they, they took me at about 4.30. Anyway, at 9.30, after a lot of waiting around, they finally said, right, you're going to court now. I thought, well, it's 9.30. Like, how's that going to work? And they took me to another building, an old Soviet-looking apartment block-type building. But on the third floor, there was a courtroom. And uh, in the courtroom, they got this judge who just seemed pissed off. You know, He'd been dragged out of his home at 9.30 at night to deal with something. And the teacher was so pissed off by this point that she wasn't really translating in full anymore. So, you know, the judge would speak a whole you know, paragraph and she would give me a half sentence in, in translation. And so the trial unfolded. I had been supposedly uh, you know, conducting journalism again. They had these witnesses who said I said this, that and the other. And they also said, most worryingly, that I'd been photographing um, restricted military sites or sensitive military sites. Um, and the judge found me guilty, and he said, uh, you'll pay a fine. Again, not much, like 70 bucks, something like that. Um, and you are banned from Russia for five years, and you have to leave. You'll be deported. And I thought, right, you know, yeah, it's not the end of the world. You know, I, it looks like Russia's not particularly a place to go back to for five years. You know, fine. And so at that point, as far as I was aware, I would, be, I would fly back to Yakutsk, get my own flight back to England via some other third country, and then fly home. Done. Um, and I was taken back to my uh, the sort of apartment I'd rented in this town. And um, probably 20 minutes later, there was a knock at the door. And it was the police again. They said, oh, actually, you have to be in the cell tonight. Pack everything you have up and, and we're going now. And so with them in front of me, I had to pack everything up. Among the stuff that was all kind of laid out was one of these little SD cards with the second half of all the recordings from this you know, Zoom on it. And... All I could do was I had a head torch next to it on the table because they were watching me pack. Um, you know, head torches have that little sort of hinge so it can mm -hmm. sort of angle down on your forehead. Um, I bent the hinge down, put the SD card in that bit and just snapped it shut and put a rubber band around the whole thing. But that just felt really precarious. You know, that's not well hidden. 
And that's the last time I was, you know, just before that point was the last time I was unattended with all my stuff for weeks to come, as it turned out. I packed everything up. We were taken to the cell, um, I, you know, fingerprinting. I was eventually about one thirty, put into this little cell. Um, and, you know, I was thankfully tired enough. I got some sleep, woke up in the morning. And from that point onwards, I was accompanied or escorted by uh, bailiffs, technically, although they said we're, we're Russia's U.S. Marshals. They, they were quite keen to sort of compare themselves to U.S. Marshals. Um, and I, I had already changed my flight that I had booked a week away to the following day to get me back to the capital. And so I was deported on, well, sent down to Yakutsk on the flight that I'd booked, but with a man as an escort. And at this point, I still thought, like, I'm just, I'm free when I get to Yakutsk, I'll go home. On arrival in Yakutsk, there was another bailiff waiting for me. And he said, right, well, you have to now go and stay in this this kind of hotel for foreigners until you fly home. And I thought, well, that's not, it's not ideal. But again, it's not the end of the world. And then on the drive in this minibus to the detention center, it turned out, yeah, it was a, it was a detention center for foreigners and it was just a prison. Um, and, you know, my shoelaces were taken away, my belt was taken off, all my goods were locked up in a locker. And, uh, you know, after being processed and checked in, the door slammed or the cell door slammed shut behind me. Uh, and then there I am. And I don't know how long for, you know, that that's, the, you know, one of the sort of bleakest moments where I just, I didn't know what exactly is going to happen after mm. that point. Um, I, I still, I suppose, was thinking a few days and I'll probably be out. Um, and they were sort of saying maybe 10 days, you got to wait for the paperwork to come down from the coast or whatever. But after a few days, you know, time had come and gone. I was in this cell. I mean, you're in the cell around the clock, 24 hours a day, uh, not allowed outside. Food's handed through a little hatch in the cell. I shared it with uh, two other men. Um, and after a few days, they said, right, you know, you should be getting a lawyer. Um, and I was allowed on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, 15 minutes of access to my phone. So back home via these frantic, hurried phone calls, my uh, my uncle and my girlfriend were kind of, you know, arranging, trying to you know, help out. Um, and so we arranged for a lawyer to come in and he said, right, well, we'll appeal the decision. But that appeal wasn't heard for two weeks. And that appeal was dismissed out of hand. I was taken to the court. Um, and this is after two weeks, you know, by this point, I was, you know, I was not a happy guy. Um, I mean, it was almost comical going to the court for the appeal. You know, I was so desperate to get outside. I hadn't been outdoors for two weeks. And they said, right, you're going to the court. And I knew that meant I'd get to be outdoors for a few minutes, you know, as I walked from the door into the minibus and in, from the minibus into the court at the other end. But they, they, gave, they put me in cuffs. And then they, with another pair of handcuffs, cuffed me to one of the guards who had a taser. And there was a, another guard on the other side with a taser. And they wouldn't let me have my shoelaces or my belt back. And I'd lost quite a lot of weight during this trek. So my trousers are falling down. My hiking shoes had these massive sort of, you know, tongues lolling out the front. And walking walking down the courthouse corridors, I was doing this kind of weird, you know, John Wayne wide-kneed shuffle to try and stop my trousers from falling down. Meanwhile, my hands are pinned to this guy to my right. But the, the judge looked at the papers for, you know, like two minutes and said, yeah, no, it's your crimes are too serious. Um, there's a political element and, you, you know, you're, you're going back into the detention center. And... This was probably the time when I felt most low. Um, about a week earlier, I had suddenly unexpectedly been dragged onto in front of a TV camera and interviewed. And that was a bit concerning. That felt like, um, you know, being tried by the court of public opinion. They had um, eventually the news bit aired, I think, the day before my appeal. 
but they had gone up to Tixie and they got witness statements one from one bloke who I never even met saying, yeah, you know, he was talking about Ukraine and he was photographing these military sites. Again, no photos were ever provided that you know, backed up that story. Um, and all the while, you know, those, those first two weeks, all of my belongings are in their possession. And the police have come and searched. They made me turn on their phone, my phone, unlock it for them. I had a GPS device, which really freaks them out. My GoPro to them looked like a spy camera. But when they first laid out all my belongings, as some policeman, you know, I was taken cuffed out my cell to be, you know, to turn everything on for him and sort of on the table laid out in this neat little row was all my items. And among them was this plug socket and that head torch with the hidden little um, SD card in it. Mm. And although technically those things weren't really incriminating the fact that they had been hidden didn't look good and i probably should have said earlier back in march two months earlier they had introduced a new law with a maximum sentence of up to 15 years for journalists um providing or sort of spreading fake news about the military i.e anyone really speaking the truth about the military after the invasion after the invasion uh and you know these recordings had lots of me talking about the invasion, the atrocities in butcher and you know, all sorts. And my whole diary, which up to this point I'd kept hidden because when I was checked into the cell while they were going through all my stuff, I just slipped it in my trousers because um, I thought this diary doesn't look good. I slipped it in my trousers, which again, freaked me out a little bit. Are they going to frisk me? Are they not? I got it into the cell and then I just hid it in plain sight among my belongings. Uh, and it was all the stuff in the locker that the police went and looked through. So there's just a lot of things going on. I'm constantly on edge that I'm just about to become, you know, a, a political bargaining chip. Did they find the SD cards? No, thankfully. Um, this is actually the first time I've spoken about those SD cards. And, you know, those would have qualified me for at least, you know, you're a journalist, uh, if not espionage. And the, the guards in the prison who were... I mean, I think they were probably nice, normal guys, but they treated, they were wankers to us. Um, I mean, they kept on saying to me, are you a spy and don't fight my country? You know, they, they would also on their phones look up phrases in English and then kind of chant them at, back at me. Like, you are a spy, Walker. Um, and so it was, it, was a, it was a scary time. Um, and after the appeal was rejected, I then thought, well, you know, this could, be, this could be a really long time. You know, I could be here for months and the longer I'm here, the, the more chance there is that either they'll find some of these, these SD cards or my diary or that they will, you know, some ambitious you know, cop, some ambitious policeman or bureaucrat will decide to pick up my case again to retry try me under the criminal offence. I mean, given they'd made up most of their evidence anyway, it, it's no stretch to think that they could pin on me the fake news journalist thing and put me away for 15 years. Um, I mean, I, I didn't know that I, I didn't even know of her at the time. But since getting out, I've learned about and I'm going to get her name wrong. But Brittany Grinner, yes. the, the basketball player who I mean, we don't really even know where she is. I think I, I think a bit of news came out about her the other day. But I mean, she's clearly being, in, in my opinion, I mean, it's, it's, it's totally outrageous. But she, I think, is being held, you know, as a prisoner swap fodder. You know, they're, they're, they, they will use her when convenient. Yeah, they're trying to get um, there's a, an arms dealer that we have. And they're trying to get the arms dealer swapped for the basketball player. Because she had a CBD vape. Yeah. And they arrested her like a week before the invasion even happened. You know, they knew what was going to happen, it seems, and they just held on to her. Yeah, um, she's valuable, I guess. And, and I mean, I, you know, I, I, I hope that she's out as soon as possible. But I really worry about, you know, whether they'll, um, oh, Held hey, in jail for another, another 18, 18 days. days. Yeah, but what does that mean? Well, she's she's been there for over 100 days already. And yeah. 
I mean, I, I was I was inside for for not very long, but She's 18 been, days feels like an eternity. Yeah, it says uh, drug smuggling charges until July 2nd, pushing her jail stint past the four-month mark, according to the official state news agency, TASS. Uh, how do you word, say that word? Kimki? Kimki. Uh, Kimki yeah. Court of Moscow Region granted the 18-day extension at the request of investigators. The agency quoted the court's press service as saying, it is typical of Russian courts to extend detention repeatedly until trial. Ms. Griner's lawyer, Alexander Boykov, could not immediately be reached for comment. Yeah, so the, I mean, the... Could you scroll down a little bit further? What it says that American basketball players... Uh, Star was arrested four months ago after the Russian officials said they found a vape cartridge bearing traces of hash oil in her luggage while she was passing through the Shermantievo Airport, Moscow's main international airport. The charge carries a jail sentence of up to 10 years. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, they... I, I really, I really hope this proves to be correct, that it's only 18 more days I you, you never know with with Russia. I mean, just this morning I saw in the news Navalny has essentially disappeared. They moved him to an undisclosed location. Oh boy! His lawyer went to to visit him this morning, and when he said, you know, where's Alexei, the the prison just said, um, we have no convict of the, of such a name, and that's it. That's all they said. Can you explain who that is to people? Sorry, yeah, Alexei Navalny is the sort of Russian opposition politician who. Uh, he's been a, a, a very vocal critic and opponent of Putin for years. Um, he, I mean, Boris Nemtsov was a close ally of him. He was killed by the regime. Um, Navalny was locked up under fraud charges, I think, for, with a two-year sentence. About two weeks ago, they added another nine years and said that he was inciting opposition. I mean, they've gone full autocrat now. Yeah. You know, there's no longer any pretense. Um, but but uh, Navalny is the guy who, who was in Europe for a while and then he flew from Germany back to Russia incredibly bravely. Many would say foolishly, but you know he, he's very dedicated to trying to sort of liberate the Russian people from the tyranny that they're living under. Um, he flew back knowing full well what that would mean. And that was after they had already tried to kill him with Novichok. They put Novichok in his pants in a hotel room in, in Berlin or something. Um, and now he's, he's disappeared. Um, it's... I mean, I think I was very lucky to be this, you know, the fact that I'm out now at all, I think probably stems from the fact that I was all the way out there in the east where people are a little sort of out of the loop. Had I been in Moscow, like Brittany Griner, um, then I think things might have been very different. Are you worried now about talking about this openly that they might target you? A little bit. But um, yes and no. I mean, the thing that I'm most... um, most mindful of is and that's why I've probably sounded quite vague about some of the you know people I've essentially cited uh, in in this chat is I, I need to be very careful because being associated with me for various people in Russia could be a real problem for them there's one guy who I believe is being he he, he was uh, one of the witnesses used against me in one of the two places um, he's not a Russian citizen he's from another country and he's got in touch with me saying he's now being deported he's lived there for 10 years and that's that's um I mean, it's not my fault, but it's on my head. Um, I am not, I mean, maybe maybe they're going to try and fuck with me. I, I don't plan to go back. You know, I'm banned for five years anyway, but unless there's a, a, a total change of regime, not just, you know, Putin falls or is strung up from a lamppost or something and is replaced by his you know, next mate, but like an actual, like, perestroika again, um, then I won't go back. I wouldn't feel safe and probably wouldn't be safe. But equally, me being outside Russia now talking about, 
what's happened and also what you know you know referencing what has been happening in in ukraine i'm the last person they care about you know because there are there are actual journalists doing actual journalism spreading actual news and fact about the the incredible atrocities i mean when i when we flew from Tixi down to Yakutsk on the flight. Firstly, there were like in the airport, there were um, banners with the letters Z, Z, Z everywhere. Um, and there were a bunch of soldiers. I, sh- I should say, so Tixi, um, it used to be a restricted zone. And then in January 2021, they sort of declassified it. And that's how my trip became viable. And I thought, okay, great. It's safe to go there now. What's the significance of the letter Z? Uh, so that's the... Um, uh, I mean, it stands for Za Pobedi, like for victory. And that's what the Russians have on their tanks, um, Z and, and V. Um, so they, they, you know, the tanks that have driven across into Ukraine, they've all got the letter Z marked out on them in paint or tape. But all over Russia, you, you'll see now cars or trucks or buses with the Z on them. It's this like mark of like Russian pride in the the, the special operation that's that's being undertaken in, in Ukraine, the, the invasion. Um but all these, you know, soldiers on this flight, you know, they were uh, they were sort of in their forties. They looked, you know, judging by their age and the sort of epaulets and stars all over them, they looked like they were probably relatively senior personnel. And sitting on that flight was weird. I was thinking, if they're flying from here, maybe some of them will be deployed to Ukraine. And if they're deployed to Ukraine, maybe some of these guys will be sanctioning or at least turning a blind eye to rape and murder and torture in in the weeks to come. Um, but Tixi itself. Even as they were declassifying it, they installed a bunch of um, uh, missile silos, surface air missile silos outside the town, which I wasn't aware of. So it's uh, Russia's huge Arctic coast. It's like 12,000 miles of sort of frontier. And they've got three points ranged along it that are the kind of hubs of their, they call it the ice curtain, their Arctic defense strategy. And Tixi is one of those. So they've, uh, in the last few years, massively ramped up their military personnel there, their military hardware. Um, so, you know, that, that's to defend against any attacks from the north by sea or air or, or whatever. Um, and so that, you know, was, I guess, why they were particularly on edge about me being there and this idea of, you know, photographing the military, which, again, I hadn't been, but but that was, you know, why they sort of summoned that. So how did they eventually let you go and why? Um, so they when, when they've got foreigners in this detention center, detention center, um, to deport you, they've got to take you to Moscow first because there's no international airport in Yakutsk. And to do that, they, you know, the being taken to Moscow involves handcuffs and guards, and it's like this whole big rigmarole. They do it on the state budget. You have no say over when it happens, so you just have to wait. And for, for the other, I think there were no more than about 12 people in this detention center. There were only five cells. Um, for the other people there, that's just a case of just waiting. And they were basically all undocumented workers, um, so people who had either outstayed their work visa or never had one. And, you know, they, 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 most of them seemed fairly stoical about it, although some of them had been there for... I didn't get to talk to many because I was in a cell with two for two weeks and then by myself for two weeks after that. Um, but I think the longest any of them were there were probably about six weeks, um, except one Ukrainian guy who had been given a six-month six sentence there he had been in a prison for two and a half years beforehand for some criminal offence that he wouldn't tell me what. So I, I don't really know what his story was. Um, but they deport you when the next sort of deportation run happens to be booked up. And very last minute on the sort of 16th, I think, of May, um, wh- when I'd been inside nearly four weeks, they said, right, uh, on Wednesday, two days from now, um, if you can book flights to coincide with this deportation that we're doing of three other people, then you can go with it. 
Um, and so, you know, hurriedly, I got my wonderful girlfriend to, to arrange flights so that I could fly with them on this flight to Moscow. And from there, I would then, as far as, as they told me, I would go through customs and immigration, and then I'd be in the departures lounge, and I'm sort of essentially out of Russia and then free to go. Um, so we arranged this flight, and I was taken with them. And that was, you know, huge relief. Finally, I'm moving. I'm getting out of here. Um, had uh, it not worked out that time, they, they gave me a COVID test. Had I been positive for COVID, um, had we managed to not get the flight, had there been no seats left on the plane, then I would have had to wait for the next one, which they told me was going to be sort of late July. So, you know, another two months or so. Um, so thankfully, we got tickets. I got on that flight, you know, marched on in your handcuffs again. Um, five bailiffs escorting the four of us sort of prisoners. They took us to Moscow to Sheremetyevo Airport, the same airport where Brittany uh, Griner was um, arrested. And we were then put into a small room to wait for our respective check-in times for our different flights. Me to London via uh, Dubai with Emirates, a guy to Armenia, a guy to Uzbekistan, and another fella to Kyrgyzstan. Um, and uh, finally they said, right, it's your time for check-in. I went and got my bag checked in, was taken through um, sort of security and immigration by a SWAT team, well, a two-person sort of SWAT team with a bunch of police. There was, there was like a whole gang of people. Finally got through, and they gave me my passport back and my phone back and said, right, now, and I was like, great, I'm, you know, this is it, I'm free. And they said, right, just wait here a minute. And then suddenly I was taken through this extra layer of security that I hadn't expected. And there were about six cops who didn't know who I was. They'd been given, I guess, a one sheet you know, or a little stack of papers saying about my case. And they basically were just given me and all my bags and just well, my, my, you know, my backpack. Again, I haven't been left unsupervised um, with all my stuff at any point. And so suddenly they had all my possessions, including that head torch, including the plug socket, including my diary, which they got their hands on. And for an hour and a half, they just went over everything. They went through all the phone conversations. They went back on my phone through photos for years. Eventually, they came across a picture of me from 10 years earlier in Afghanistan with a big beard and a sort of headscarf and an AK-47 in the desert, which oh, really didn't help. And it was a totally innocent picture. I'd been cycling along. One of the Afghan National Army soldiers, you know, the good guys at a road checkpoint, invited him for tea. And their hobbies are kind of drinking tea and taking pictures with guns in the desert. Um, and, you know, they, they kept pulling up things on my phone saying, you know, what's this? What's this for? They found my diary. This is the first time someone got their hands on my diary. And they start reading through. One of them could speak decent English, reading through stuff. And I, thankfully, in the prison, had censored a bunch of stuff. I'd gone through and I'd scrubbed things out. I'd big black marks all over the place. For instance, the third, you know, it's a diary day by day, you know, given the date. The third day in big block capitals, it said at the top, Russia invades Ukraine. It was like, scrub that out. You know, this, it just, there was just, there was a wealth of stuff. Had they really looked closely, that would probably still be visible. Or you turn it over on the back, you can see where the pen mark is pressed, the, right. the impressions. There was just a wealth of stuff there that they could have, you know, you know, locked me up for. And this is now in Moscow, where it just felt more serious. And this process went on for ages. They were asking me loads of questions. And I've, I started to realize, well, in my mind, I was realizing that's it. Like this is, you know, it's just got like we're, we're back to square one, but worse. Um, and the, the, my flight time was sort of ticking slowly closer and they showed no sign of letting me go. And I was like, no, I've got to get on my flight soon. And they started looking through just all the pictures on my camera. Um, and I mean, they were also going to like personal conversations on WhatsApp on my phone. And like it was it was a really uh, my 
girlfriend who I just texted when I got my phone back saying, you know, I've got my phone. It's, it's all done. It's all over. She then was trying to reply and call me and the messages were marked as red. The calls were just getting hung up each time. So she was freaking out because suddenly, like I say, I'm free. And suddenly it seems I don't have access to my phone and mm. I'm in Moscow. So this went on for an hour and a half during which um, it's like in Russia, everyone shits on whoever's below them. You know, so all these people were trying to intimidate the shit out of me. Um, and they were saying, okay, well, you know, you've got to wipe your phone. You've got to wipe every photo that you have on your camera. And I like, you know, if it came to it, I'd be willing to do that. But I didn't want to because I also want to have some record of this journey I've been on, which was great until I was arrested. Um, and it, it started to feel like I'm, I'm about to get locked up. This is it. And it's either going to be espionage or journalism, you know, fake news journalism. And I'm going to be here for years, you know, um, there's a British woman who got locked up for basically the same thing in Iran and was behind bars for six years. Um, and you know, it wasn't helped by the fact that um, Boris Johnson, now the prime minister, was foreign secretary at the time. And he said publicly, oh, she's just teaching people journalism. It's fine. Oh, and geez. she was there. You know, she's an uh, Iranian-British dual national. She was there visiting her family. So that like didn't help. And she became a bargaining chip with the British government. Um, basically, the British had a sort of £240 million unpaid uh, debt. They had, before the Shah was deposed, they had sold, they had taken money for 240 million pounds worth of money for uh, some tanks. But after the the Iranian Revolution, um, the Islamic Revolution, the British just didn't deliver the tanks and held the money. So it was actually like a, a fair grievance, to be honest. But um, uh, she was held until eventually that was agreed to be paid. So it was a very like naked bargaining chip thing, and that was totally for, forefront of my mind. Like this is, you know. This, the amount of sanctions, the amount of, you know, things that Britain is doing at the moment to sort of hinder Russia and to aid Ukraine, like I, I could be pretty useful. And then just as my flight was, you know, about, like about to take off, they suddenly said, right, pack everything up. And they ran me through the departures lounge, like at a run um, to the gate where they were clearly waiting for me. Um, so I got on the plane. Um, you know, the last soldier was gone behind me. The doors shut. Uh, the plane took off. And the minute those wheels took off, I just broke down like I floods of tears it was the oh. first time in the whole uh, the whole like you know long month that dude I'm freaking out and you're unraveled. here <laughs> I know well like so this morning like you know I thought well, having this chat oh. with you I should probably read through my like diary because in prison I was allowed pen and paper so on little scraps of paper keeping them all sort of separate I wrote what was happening day to day and this morning I was reading through it and it got me on edge again you know I was like freaking out because it just brought back that sense of insecurity you know being in this cell writing stuff there are cameras in the ceiling you're always watched you never know who's watching mm. um, you never know who's going to next go and look through your stuff it just you know it scared the shit out of me Jesus Christ man sorry I, I think I relayed all that quite scattily because you know no, it was it's, amazing it was it's great. hard to uh, to kind of tell it chronologically I guess because it's, it's always... interesting oh yeah uh, if you ever find yourself in prison and you need some dice um, you can make them with bread and toothpaste for the dots oh <laughs> this is bread uh, yeah this is bread if you take the crust off and just kind of knead the flesh of the bread kind of back into dough add a bit of water uh, it becomes quite sort of, um, you know, versatile. Um, although the one that we're looking at now with the six, it turns out that's kind of a bent die. That rolls a six pretty much every time. <laughs> but the other ones were pretty equal. And I had time to like, with you know, with each of them, I rolled them like 300 times to like tally what they came up. You know, it's just anything to kill time. So one of those dice was almost perfectly fair. One of them was all right. The one with that six was not good. And were you gambling with people? No, not gambling. I mean, we had, uh, so I was the only one who didn't smoke. Um, I'm a non-smoker and two other guys in the cell smoking. It wasn't ideal, but they, 
uh, this is the first two weeks when I had cellmates, they quickly ran out of cigarettes and started smoking tea. You know, they would like tear open tea bags and sprinkle the tea oh, into a Jesus page ripped out of a Christ. Russian sort of Pulp Fiction novel, um, which, uh, you know, was, was kind of desperate times How for them. How bizarre. Um, no, we didn't gamble, but we made a drafts or checkers board using, you know, the kind of the paper toggle that you hold when you're dipping a tea bag. Mm-hmm. There were two different colors of those. You know, like the you know, tea and bread was about half the diet. Uh, so we, you know, we got a bunch of those that we could use as drafts or checkers. Um, and those guys, I, I don't actually know how to play backgammon, but they set up a backgammon board for themselves using dice. And, yeah, you, know, you find ways to kill time, but um, mostly it was books thankfully a local friend and the lawyer that i hired were allowed to deliver me some english language books which i i mean in uh so i I didn't get them immediately so in the course of probably about 23 days i tallied up i read seven thousand pages plus of books just you know just reading i mean whatever i could get hold of some of which wasn't great some was fantastic um i did a lot of sort of sit-ups and push-ups my last day i did 700 sit-ups which <laughs> um, I mean, it's all gone now. You know, I've been back and I've been living living well slash badly since I got home. But uh, yeah, just anything to kill time. Well, no one can fault you for that. <laughs> God damn, man, that must have been a harrowing experience. Do you do you still have nightmares about it? I've never had nightmares about it, but I have had once or twice since I got back when I've woken up, sort of thinking that I'm still there. Mm. Um, which I mean, when I was inside for the first week or so, I'd wake up every morning thinking I was elsewhere. And almost the most depressing thing was the first morning when I woke up and I wasn't at all surprised to be in this prison. Um, you know, that was a bit shitty. But I, I'd actually, I don't really dream. I very rarely remember any dreams um, slash nightmares. So thankfully, uh, that hasn't been a problem. I think I'm more or less all right. Maybe I'm, I mean, I'm very British. I'm probably just like compacting all my all my trauma mm. and burying it. Um, I also spent 10 years at boarding school, which was quite good training for, for prison, I guess. <laughs> Um, and had just been, you know, living outdoors in, you know, super cold temperatures for a while. So I guess the novelty of being inside with like running water and, um, you know, food bought to you, even though it wasn't great food. Um, you know, like I, I think I was quite good at trying to see the bright side and I put myself through quite a lot of stresses in the past. And so I'm probably fairly resilient to things like this, Mm. but it's definitely left a mark and, you know, I'm sure I'll be. I mean, it's recent. I got out like three weeks ago, and I'm still, I guess, sort of picking over it in my mind. Have you started to write about it? Um, I wrote a article for the Sunday Times that went out about a week ago, um, and that was a really good sort of cathartic process, like going through it all, reading over stuff, and just trying to trying to like process it formally as opposed to just vague thoughts drifting about but um i i I will start shortly work on a book about it um about the whole trip not just about this time in prison because i frankly the prison time you know it's it's quite dramatic um but it was largely just very boring frightening and frustrating um was it disturbing seeing the effectiveness of the propaganda on the populace i mean that that seems to the most the most disturbing thing yeah um after about 10 days in the uh, a tv was put into our cell which I, for about 30 seconds, I thought, this is great, you know, something to distract. And then I immediately realized this is going to be blaring loud, crap Russian TV shows around the clock. And it, you know, very quickly started to drive me mad. I was very glad to then a few days later be put in a, in a cell by myself. Um, but that meant that I, you know, had like daily access to the propaganda, you know, when the war was sort of three weeks, uh, sorry, three months in. And I mean, they, it's, it's insane. They're, they're obsessed with this idea that, 
it's well, you know, the the government has sold this idea, the Kremlin, that it's that it's liberating people from Nazism, and I think that's because, you know, throughout the whole Soviet era, the the you know the Soviet sort of state's founding myth was the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, and that slowly changed because I mean I think um, Putin is slowly kind of removing Len- or sort of diminishing Lenin's reputation. He's actually starting to try and sort of rehabilitate Stalin's reputation, which is astounding, frankly. Um, but the, the founding myth, essentially, myth's not fair. The founding story of the, the of the Russian Federation now is basically the Second World War, or the Great Patriotic War, as they call it, um, in which so many millions of R- Russians died. You How know, is he trying to rehabilitate Stalin's image? Um, just, I mean, in Russia, you can rewrite the history books. <laughs> It's you know it's 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 that simple. He's and they don't have general access to the internet, right? Uh, the, the internet is heavily sort of censored, and more and more. You know, when I arrived, there was still Instagram and Twitter and whatever. And as soon as the the, the invasion happened, they they cut Twitter, they cut or just severely restricted the bandwidth to I think Instagram. But lots of people have VPNs; they find ways around it. Do, are um, VPNs effective in that regard? Can you I, use them? To- I didn't use them but i saw loads of people using them i think i mean they're always effective i think for people who don't know what we're talking about virtual private network you yeah can, you can use them to pretend you're in a different country you can use them to access different parts of the internet that might be restricted exactly um and but the, yeah so the, the second world war is this kind of you know foundational story so many millions of people died and it's the great triumph of russia to have been so instrumental in defeating the nazis and russia was incredibly instrumental the eastern front the war back then for Ukraine in particular, Stalingrad, you know, th- this was this was like untold numbers of deaths, you know, it way outnumbers the Western Front, even with the Dunkirk, uh, the D-Day landings and stuff. Um, and so Russia sees, you know, its noble defeat of Nazism and oppression of fascism as its kind of almost its national raison d'etre, its reason mm. to be. And uh, the, the news was just covered in like grainy old footage from the Second World War. And uh, they had got a few little clips uh, from, uh, are you aware of the Azov Battalion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for, for Those are the Nazis. In, in, but it's a different kind of, the concept of Nazism is different, right? Yeah. It's more of a nationalism than it is like an anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic Nazism. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert Am I right this. about that? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty much it. But I mean, th- that was the Azov battalion's roots at least and i guess sort of white nationalism. are they using swastikas they've got their own sort of take on a, it's a sort of slightly swastika-esque symbol i guess what is it can we see what that looks like the it's a kind of a yellow and black type symbol i think um but uh but why the, how is it correlated with nazism so well the azov battalion's roots and and you'll probably be able to pull up you know, better information than I'm able to sort of summon from my slightly sketchy memory. But their roots were a while ago, and they did have this this kind of line of extremism, I guess. Um, but that's changed a lot. They, um, so there, there it you is. Go. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a swastika inspiration mm, to that. Yeah, similar. But they, they've, uh, you know, but It also looks more... like when they find utilities, you know, you know like uh, when they draw, draw that thing on the street. Oh, yeah. When they're doing, you know what I'm talking about? Gasworks. Yeah, when they spray paint lines <laughs> yeah. on the street where the... Where the lines are. Also, you flip it on its side, and it's a it's a Z. Yeah, um, right. But they, uh, I think I'm right in saying that with the uh, invasion, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, the Azov Battalion sort of broadened, um, and other people joined, and that kind of element was, you know, constricted and and became, you know, had a diminishing role. 
However, there is out there online from a long time ago sort of plenty of Azov Battalion propaganda, people marching, there's the odd sort of Sieg Heil, you mm -hmm. know, uh, Hitler saluting. Um, and that stuff has all been dredged up and it's just put all over the place, as well as other footage, kind of grainy, um, you know, f f uh, video phone filmed footage that claims to be, but I'm pretty sure wasn't, um, members of the Azov Battalion just beating up strangers on the street, kind of, you know, just random violent attacks. Mm. But they just they just ram all this down the throats of the, of the public. And it, it does seem like the vast, I mean, after Putin invaded, his popularity within Russia soared. Really? Yeah. I, I think there's been some changes there. There have been a few brief high-profile people speaking out, but they quickly get suppressed or arrested or whatever. Uh, and there were initially protests across the country, but in the first like two or three days of the war, something like 15,000 people were arrested. Um, and so quickly dissent got kind of quashed. Um, and in my admittedly limited experience of an admittedly niche, far remote part of Russia, it seemed like plenty of people and I, you know, I, I had to be very careful about generalizations here, but it seemed like plenty of people either realized that it's just it's bullshit and they're being lied to or, were, you know, had their doubts. It's just understandably no one's putting their head above the parapet and saying this because there's no there's nothing to gain. It's, right. You know, if, if you speak out, you're going to get in trouble or your family are going to get in trouble and trouble can mean years in prison or in basically the gulag. They've still got labor camps, you know, labor prisons, uh, penal colonies, they call them dotted around the country. Um, and so, you know, people understandably are just keeping their heads down and, and getting on with life. And it's been weird since coming back because, you know, I had, I had and to some extent still have this massive hole in my knowledge of what's going on with the with the, the war because I didn't have, uh, you know, phone service while I was out in the wild. And then very right. quickly I was, you know, even in Tixi, there was no Wi-Fi anywhere. And very quickly I was suddenly banged up in a prison with, without access, you know, brief phone calls to try and manage my, you know, my appeal or logistics, whatever, but never any, you know, looking at the news. And getting out, it's been very interesting seeing this kind of, firstly, the, the incredible and totally worthwhile, noble, you know, support of Ukraine. And it's been great to see that at a public level, at a state level, and, you know, long may that continue. And maybe we'll talk a bit about the future in a minute. But also there's this, this slightly worrying kind of general Russophobia that has me a little bit uncomfortable because at the beginning of the war, it was very much billed in Western media, at least, as one man's mad war. You know, Putin's crazy sort of, you know, crusade to try and write himself in the history books and claim back what he saw as Russian lands. And slowly that narrative seems to have changed to the point where with some of the, I mean, there's there's companies who, I mean, I think McDonald's, for, in, for instance, leaving Russia, I think that's the right thing to do. And just two days ago, all the McDonald's restaurants were reopened under the new branding Fukuzna y Tolka, which is, or Tochka, which is uh, tasty, and that's it. Which is some that's the new name. <laughs> yeah. So they just basically took the McDonald's yeah, stores and selling and all the same shit. Share the same not, thing. Yeah, you know, the secret ingredients won't be there. Mm. Um, but then there's also, uh, you know, just like Russian people or companies that have no connection to you know, to the state. It seems have you know been experiencing quite a lot of hardship as well. And Russian athletes. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly. I mean, Wimbledon's a very good example. I totally disagree with the idea of. Uh, Russian tennis players being banned from playing at Wimbledon. And well, I think it's right that Wimbledon is not counting as a sort of a tennis rankings tournament this there year. There was criticism of uh, Canelo Alvarez uh, boxing against Bivol. Right. 
these are athletes. The Olympics yeah. is slightly different when you're representing your country and there's a sort of state-sponsored dope pro doping program that's been right. going on for years. But like tennis players who are individuals, you don't play tennis for your country. You play tennis for yourself. You don't box for your country unless it's Rocky IV. Yeah. You box for yourself. Um, and I, I, I have a slight... I, I don't feel good about some of these sort of things that are, that are happening. Yeah, I share that concern. Yeah. It's actually made its, all the, its way into billiards. There's a, a man named Fedor Gorst who's a uh, top-level pool player, mm -hmm. and uh, there's people that want him banned from tournaments. I mean, that's uh, that just seems vindictive, frankly. Well, it just seems know. ignorant. If, if you're if you're um, if you're just a you know Russian sports person who's keeping their head down, that that's not fair. If you're someone who's like you know you know up the regime, this right. is great. Let's go, good old Putin. Like there was some male russian gymnast recently i think who used a podium place to you know to perform a letter z or something i'm not entirely sure yeah that's a bit different oh, people right. sharing sort of public support and essentially you know repeating propaganda that's that's a different thing but if you're just a sports person then i, I think it's it's not it's not really right well it's fascinating how many athletes come out of ukraine how many great boxers have come out of ukraine mm. the klitschko brothers of course one of them is the mayor <laughs> It, which is really insane. Yeah. Uh, and um, also, um, you know, uh, Lomachenko. There's, there's quite a few, like, elite boxers. It's a massive country as well. Yeah. It's like 45 million people or something. It's, I, think, I think for a long time we kind of chose to forget just how large and important Ukraine is, you know, particularly with grain and all the, you know, exports, chemical exports, nuclear power, all these things that they produce and farm and whatever there, as well as, like, human exports. Uh, I think we're suddenly realizing, like, how much of a powerhouse Ukraine is in its own in its own right. So for the three weeks <clears throat> since you've been out, have you been playing catch up, trying to absorb as much media as possible and get a I've sort been, of an objective understanding of what's happening over there? Yeah, I've been I've been trying my best to. It's it is difficult with um just checking the news because you tend to just get the latest developments. And I'm I'm sure there'll be things that, you know, over the coming months that come out that I had no idea about that was massive news for a day or two. Um, you know, if I'd been in over the period that these two British and one Moroccan citizens were recently sentenced to death in uh, Donetsk for having fought with the, I mean, they were all in the Ukrainian forces before the invasion anyway, but they've been tried and found guilty and given the death sentence for being mercenaries. If, if, if something like that happened, you know, briefly while I was inside, then that news pops up and then disappears again quite quickly. And, and, and that mm. sort of stuff I, I might not know. But actually the best solution to that I found is, is by trawling through podcasts from the period that I was in, podcasts from news outlets and, and you know, various political discussion, whatever. And that's been quite a good way to sort of, you know, stop the gap. It seems like in your recovery from prison and dealing with just the, the, the psychological stress and then absorbing all this information, I mean, that has to be taking up a gigantic portion of your life. Is it is it difficult to get back on track and to try to have a semblance of normalcy? It's, yeah. I mean, it's been a really flat out time since I got back. Also, a bunch of friends are all getting married this summer, so I'm sort of dancing around all over the place. <laughs> going. To, I mean, this month I've literally got four weddings and a funeral. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a busy time just socially as well. It's summer and it's nice to be out and to be normal again. Um, God, it must be nice. Mm. But I, I also, I feel... Uh, I, I have to point out that although what happened to me was psychologically quite frightening, firstly, I was never like beaten or abused or starved or anything like that. You know, the soldiers were sometimes pricks, but that's not a big deal. Secondly, what's happened to me is in the grand scheme of things, totally insignificant and irrelevant. And I still got a home. I haven't been bombed. Right. I haven't lost a family member. Like, of course. you know, I, I think if anything, 
I would like my experiences to highlight the the extent to which Russia is gone as a functioning state. And we knew it wasn't a functioning democracy, but it's it's post-truth. You know, it's 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 a, it's a state where it, it doesn't matter if something is a totally blatant lie. It you can be. I mean, Russian. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get this stat wrong. Jamie might be able to pull it up. But of cases that go to court in Russia, I think. The latest statistic is 99.97 or 99.7, perhaps, percent of cases end in a guilty verdict. You know, if, if you're accused of something in Russia, you are guilty. That's it. There's no there's no dispute. Um, and, and it's just it's not a country. I, I mean, I, I would advise no one to go there. You know, like it's 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 not safe to be a foreigner, particularly if you're from one of the kind of NATO or Western or EU countries. That is wild. It's just it's lost. It's, as a country, it's lost. We're back to the to the kind of the bad old days. I was, there was discussion about fights taking place in Russia, and I think we might have done a UFC in Moscow. I think we did. I think there was a UFC in Moscow. See if that's the case. UFC is huge. Yeah. But they, yeah. Well, they had uh, one of the greatest uh, heavyweight champions ever in Fyodor Emelianenko. Yeah. Fight night 163. And yeah, Zabit. Yeah. Zabit uh, Magomed Shapirov, who's uh, one of the, top flight guys Sharapov excuse me I, I always fuck his name up Magomed Sharapov uh, versus Calvin Cater which is a great fight that took place in Russia so this was when was this 2019 yeah did you go over not, for that I did not I did I don't do the fight nights but there was discussion of doing um, a major event over there and when whenever there's a major event uh, I get tempted to going just to see I, there's a few places I've never experienced. I've never experienced Moscow, and I think the architecture is spectacular, and I'd be interested in just seeing what it's like over there. And Unfortunately, you'd be an absolute gift to the authorities. Um, I, I would To arrest me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Particularly, yeah. I suppose you're publicly an advocate of substances that are very much banned in Russia. Oh, yeah, um, all of them. And, you know, they, they will they will swab every inch of you. <laughs> they'll find some stuff, I'm sure. Well, just yeah. testing or, me. Well, or they'll just say they found some stuff. Yes. That's, that's the thing. It doesn't have to be true. That's what I've heard about that's, this basketball player woman, yeah. Brittany Griner, that they, they believe that they might have even planted these things or, or lied about what's in there. I don't uh, have any desire to go over there now, but back then I was tempted because I'm just curious about the experience of going to these places. Like well, it is a fascinating place. Yeah. I mean, it's got an incredible history, and I and I and I think the history is what has drawn me there a lot. I, I've been a few times in the last few years, and um, I mean it's basically a morbid curiosity. Like Russia's yeah. history is just a relentless parade of shit. Yeah, you know, like it's just the you know the people the, the deaths are counted by the sort of vague estimated millions as opposed to, you know, precise numbers. You know, it just it, it's been it's scored more own goals in history than any other country. Surely, you know, they 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 really have fucked themselves over a lot of times in a lot of ways. And 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 this is frankly what I what is the expression? What are you saying? Scored more what? Own goals. Oh, so in in, oh, in, in football in soccer, oh, you know, if you kick right. the ball in your you goal by up. mistake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um and they I mean I think this is part of what I've historically admired about Russian people that I've met as well is that they are just incredibly stoical. It's like they're almost born to suffer and just put up with crap in a very like staunch almost admirable way and i and i and i do find that you know admirable um 
and and I can somewhat relate to it because I've, I've over the years put myself through a lot of you know unnecessarily put myself through a lot of like difficult times, uh, and but I, I guess the feeling of kinship has, has faded somewhat. Yeah, I just uh, I wonder if at all if this is going to relax to the point where travel is going to be possible again because well that's the I next thing you know like yeah. how, how long does this go on I, I think right. I think years you um, think years well so the big question at the moment Zelensky is. Um, Unfortunately, and um, in fact, I would like to say this now because for months on the inside, I could never say it. Slava Ukraine, you know, victory to the Ukrainian people. I, you know, I'm totally behind them. But Zelensky's in this impossible situation where it's going to be very, very hard to completely defeat and repel the the Russian forces beyond, you know, out of the Donbass, for instance, this bit in the east that they've seized, um, and even the Crimea. Um, but he has to politically um, say, I'm not giving up on not making any concessions of land. You know, we fight until we restore our sort of sovereign borders of Ukraine. And if he if he were to make some peace deal with the Russians that conceded territory, he'd possibly be out of office straight away. And that gives the chance for Moscow to try and insert a puppet candidate. That's a problem. But more importantly, if you, I mean, with Russia, we've seen this over the last 15 years now. If you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. If, if, uh, if, you know, the pushback isn't hard enough and they are allowed to occupy and set up their two puppet states in in the Donbass, then they've got that and next it'll be more of Ukraine or Estonia or mm. Latvia or even Finland, although, I, you know, who knows? Um, and, and it's, you know, where where does it stop? And it has to stop somewhere. You know, making peace and allowing them to have some of the territory of Ukraine is pausing rather than solving the problem. Um, and if, I feel like it's better off just fixing this problem now but it's going to be a long grinding unpleasant solution and who knows how long it'll take or what the outcome will be i you know i'm not far-sighted i'm not clairvoyant but no, I, nobody I, seems to have like a real clear understanding of how this could ever possibly play out in a positive way yeah i mean a lot i mean there are people who and i don't know entirely if i agree with this but there are certain commentators who are saying that um the war in ukraine grinding on for a long time is from the kind of you know NATO perspective sort of the ideal scenario because Russia just gets weakened. I mean, the, the tens of thousands of troops they've lost, no one knows. It's an official secret. No one in Russia knows. But, you know, they, they are losing so many people, so much hardware. I mean, their economy is actually doing fine because, you know, all the price of export of um, natural, you know, fossil fuels is, is shot up and they're still exporting just as much as they ever have. So they're actually not feeling economically that much strain yet but that's to come i think um but you know the longer it goes on the more weakened russia becomes and that's sort of you know ideal from the view the standpoint of the opponents of russia um but i mean it's just it's just a it's horrific for the ukrainian people who essentially are the sort of cannon fodder to you know to that end and there's always the looming threat that he uses a nuke yeah well that's the thing you I mean that's the f the fault with nuclear weapons in the first place. You know, it, right. it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. But he probably just about is mad enough, and everyone thought that he was like bluffing this whole time. But it does seem like he's genuinely mad. And if he, I mean, a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of sort of conspiracy theory around, I suppose, about his health. And perhaps yes. he's got you know, bone cancer. Or well, Oliver cancer Stone or... said that he was being treated for cancer when he went to visit him and have interviews with him, with which was a few years ago. Right. Oliver was over there, and he, he did you ever see that? He showed him Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> yeah, which is wild, right? Because oh. Dr. Strangelove is all about 
uh, a bunch of mad people deciding to use the bomb and conceding that we'll lose a couple of million here or there, but it's no big deal. And essentially was about real discussions that were being had during the 1950s and 60s mm. by uh, sev several generals who thought it would be a good idea to preemptively attack Russia and preemptively attack uh, China uh, with was, nuclear weapons. What was Putin's take on this film? Do we know? I don't. I mean, Oliver Stone was on here and he talked about it. And we actually watched, we looked at photographs of him and videos of him showing the Dr. Strangelove film to Putin. And, I, you know, I think he was probably paying lip service to the dangers of nuclear weapons and this yeah. and that. But you know, he's already used hypersonic weapons, and mm. I, I think in many ways that... Uh, and those um, hyperbaric ones that sucks all the oxygen out yeah. of the like, city. I mean, that's, it's horrific. Yeah, it's horrific. But, yeah. I mean, if, if, if he was mad enough to, to begin this invasion, which, I mean, there's no, there's no logic to it. Right. And there's no... There's no whatever outcome, he still loses. Right. You know, like, like, Russia has has you know massively isolated itself and you know that it's it's you know, for the prosperity of Russia as a whole and it's kind of integration I know that China is still kind of there on the fence but um, you know if you put together the kind of the European bloc and uh, America and Canada and all these other countries who you know who are on the sort of the liberal side you know that's much more important you know economically Russia has has totally shot itself in the foot and so he is clearly mad enough to make a move that stupid. So potentially he is mad enough to launch a nuclear um, missile. Well, particularly if he's really fatally sick. Mm. I mean, if that if that really is happening and he really uh, doesn't have anything to lose. You know, I, my friend Lex Friedman, who is Russian, he does not think that's going to happen because he thinks that Putin wants to have a legacy of benefiting Russia. And that if he does die, and if he is dying, that he wants to have something in in his legacy that shows that he was of benefit to Russia. That he's very committed to this idea of his legacy. I think he probably only sees that in territorial terms. Um, so uh, four or five days ago was the 350th birthday of Peter the Great, who you know was a, a Romanov czar who massively expanded Russia's territory. And Putin said in a sort of public celebration and speech, he said, you know, I see myself as picking up where Peter left off in reclaiming Russian territory. Um, I mean, Peter conquered Finland from the Swedes, so the Finns must be terrified. Um, yeah. But but I, I think I genuinely think he sees it as restoring Russia to its greatest extent, which was the Soviet Empire. And lots of people within Russia, normal people, think that, you know, the Ukrainians, the Latvians, the Uzbeks, all these people are their kind of national brethren and that they belong under the mantle of Russia. That's um, what's terrifying, right? That there's a precedent. That, yeah. that, that there's some sort of a rationalization for him acquiring these countries again. But, I mean, Russia is in itself a massive imperial project. You know, it's yeah. an empire. It's still an empire today. You know, where I was has no right being ruled by Moscow. It doesn't really make any sense. And, I mean, he's picked his time, you know, the greatest extent of Russian empire. That's where it should be again. But, I mean, one of the, I think possibly the Kenyan prime minister or foreign minister, or no, I think it was the Ken Kenya's ambassador to the UN a few weeks ago said, look, you know, we can't all just hark back to some colonial era. And, you know, Kenya could dispute borders with Tanzania or Britain could suddenly go mad again and say, we want to paint the map pink and, you know, reconquer all the world. And that's totally, you know, it's just a failed project. Um, but, you know, he's not going to listen to that. 
Yeah, and also there's a fear that China is watching this and contemplating whether or not to invade Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen Hong Kong lost in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, as far as I'm Completely concerned. lost. Yeah, Gone yeah, yeah. from being European-ruled in the 1990s and to kind of mostly maintaining that sort of tradition and and now recently gone full totalitarianism. Well, the, the deal on on the handover in 97 was that the laws and the autonomy of Hong Kong remains inviolate for 50 years after the handover. So that would be 2047, but it's already gone. You know, they, yeah. they've upped the timetable. Yeah. And, you know, it's not with China and Taiwan, I fear it's not a case of if, it's a case of when. Thankfully, the, the West's reaction to, you know, they haven't just turned a blind eye to Ukraine. And so China probably will be thinking, you know, this, this is not going to be easy. The world's not just going to roll over and let us conquer Taiwan, which is, you know, one of the world's most sort of healthy functioning democracies. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've read uh, there was some speculation about um, China economically divesting in the West and that they're going to liquidate assets and they're doing this so that to mitigate the amount of impact mm-hmm. it would have if they're sanctioned for invading Taiwan. I hadn't heard that. That's very worrying. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, w- I was reading about that, but I don't understand economics enough to really speculate <laughs> whether or not I. that's accurate or whether or not this person has a valid point. It's just the, the whole thing is so tense and it didn't, five years ago, there was no fear at all. Five years ago, it was like everything was like, look at this 2019 event that they were having in Moscow where I was like, ooh, maybe I'd like to go there. Maybe that'd be interesting. You know, I'm, I'm just fascinated in the architecture. Mm. You know, when you look in Moscow. like and the metro in particular, each metro station is like an artwork. It's like a, you know, sort of a, a totally different architecture in each one. They're, they're really, really impressive. It's also um, so unique. Like mm. their their architecture is so uniquely Russian. Yeah. Like when you look at what's going, like the, the, the just the colors and the beautiful buildings in Moscow. And, and sort of 19th century yeah, I, I know now we build bigger buildings, but from a 19th century perspective, monumental architecture, huge buildings, yeah. know, big, long, organized projects, streets that are, wow. yeah, I mean, look at this. It's incredible. Look at that. That's incredible. And each station is totally different. You know, they are really, really impressive. Well, they're such impressive people. I mean, what they've done with chess, what they've done with literature, what they've done with, particularly with martial arts. I mean, they have the, some of the most dominant fighters in the history of the sport have come out of Russia, mm. particularly in MMA, and, but, but in boxing as well, and wrestling. I mean, there's just so many incredible athletes that have come out of that system, and obviously there's a d- intense amount of corruption yeah. and cheating involved, too. Have you ever seen the uh, documentary Icarus? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great, um, great documentary to just to understand the extent of their cheating in international competition. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's also a massive population there. I think about 144 million people. Mm. Um, and although it's, um, I mean, their national average income is 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 pretty woeful. You know, it's it's. Well, I think the you know the 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 now outmoded uh, terms first world and third world. Yeah. The second world was the Soviet Union. I didn't know that until recently. So they're oh, kind yeah. of they're, they're neither here nor there, um, and that's still sort of the case. And of course, you've got the incredible wealth of kind of oligarchs and the kind of kleptocracy in 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 Moscow. 
But I mean, the vast majority of Russian people don't have a great deal. You know, they they they, they really aren't very wealthy, but they are very literate. They're relatively well educated, even if some of the history they're taught is total cobblers. Um, and so they 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 have an incredibly large population from which to you know to excel at all sorts mm. of things, science as well. I wanted to talk to you about the oligarchs because one of the things that I found fascinating about this, and and I I, I have all sorts of questions, is once they started taking yachts in real estate away from the like i didn't totally understand why a they were able to do that or b why everybody was in support of that like is there a direct connection between these oligarchs and either supporting putin or financing putin or like what's i i think and again i'm i'm you know i'm not totally across this but i my, my understanding is that um the you basically can't be an oligarch in Russia unless you kind of have Putin's blessing. You know, there have been various, you know, as Putin came to power and then slowly became more powerful, there are various oligarchs who sort of, you know, tried to rival him for power. You know, Berezovsky, there's media modal. There, there, there were a few and they were slowly just kind of removed or defeated. Yeah. And so the idea is that if you're an oligarch, you probably have the blessing of Putin and therefore potentially your wealth might be at his disposal or you're in his pocket or i mean also like frankly people who who are multi-billionaires in russia it's a corrupt state no one's making that money completely legitimately um and the, there's that element that but with seizing it and who's having their assets seized it, it does seem quite complicated and yeah. it does seem like they just spread quite a wide net to start off with um but again, this was happening while I was kind of out of the loop, so I'm not all that keyed in. I'm quickly going to run to the the toilet if that's yeah, right. the restroom. Ahead. We could wrap this up unless you want to keep going. You no, want no. to keep well, going? Up to you. I'm easy. Do you have more to talk about? Um, I bet you do. Go take a <laughs> leak. All right. All right. We'll see you in a couple of minutes. I guess the one thing that we haven't spoken about that we could is Papua New Guinea, where oh. probably the most bizarre country I've ever been to. Um, Did you experience any cannibalism? Uh, I met people who remembered those times, but cannibalism, it seems, is gone now. Yeah. Sort of since the 70s, really. What about the semen warriors? Semen warriors? You don't know about that? Oh, I'd like to hear about that. Oh, my goodness. One of the most bizarre practices um, that I've read about from New Guinea is the ritual abuse of young boys they get at an early age taken in by older men. And they're told that in order to grow strong, they need the semen of older men. And they ingest it orally and anally. See if you can find this. And this has been going on for, I mean, I don't know how long. But it's one of the most bizarre practices. Because it seem, it's like a ritualistic abuse and sexual abuse of young boys. Samian tribes rite of passage that requires young boys to drink semen if they want to transition to adulthood. Um, and it's not just semen drinking. It's like they, they, they call the father, like they, they call them anal fathers. It's very strange stuff. And this, according is, to demands, this is ongoing. Yes. According to demands of this custom, semen is thought to have some sort of a masculine spirit and young boys can only possess the spirit by drinking it. 
It's a custom believed to be a huge proof of masculinity and strength. Over the years, different meanings have been ascribed to the semen ritual. Some people have even tagged it as a form of ritualized homosexuality. Usually the young lads are not allowed to make a voluntary decision, but are simply threatened by the older men to partake in various activities in an effort to prove their masculinity. Surprisingly, the Sambia tribe considers the ingestion of semen to be a compulsory ritual for male development. For them, it is preferable for young boys to be seen as warriors than to be judged weaklings. I mean, a lot of cultures do some weird shit for, this for, is, for rites of passage. That's that's out there. This is fucking out there. And they take them in very young. I mean, they take them in the, when they're like six years old. Um, there's also, uh, I mean, they used to have the, and this this thankfully is gone now, but they used to have the custom, you know, just of headhunters. And your basically rite of passage is to kill another man, um, which I think is, I mean, as bizarre as this is, I think that's kind of even weirder um, because this is, yeah. pretty fucked up it's relatively low stakes although i guess there's quite a lot of uh, psychological harm potentially um but i mean this doesn't i mean it, it shocks me but it doesn't hugely surprise stop me. scrolling stop scroll back let's read this here after the boys are removed from their mothers they're then flogged with long sticks during a bloodletting ceremony the elders kickstart the blood purification ritual by inserting two canes in the nostrils of the new initiates until they vomit blood each boy is held against a tree, and sticks and sharp grasses are shoved up his nose. During the process, the elders continuously poke the throats of the boys with an arrow-like objects till they vomit any contaminating influence within them. Once the nose poking is done, the blood starts flowing from the no falling from the nose. The elders make a collective war cry. This is then followed by more beatings with the aim of toughening the boys so they can be powerful warriors. While a lot of the people would view the nose poking as extremely painful and intrusive exercise, the Sambia see it as a display of endurance and strength. Once the bloodletting ceremony is over, the young boys are made to perform fellatio on the older boys. After ingesting the semen, also known as male milk, it is expected that it will help the boys grow stronger due to the presence of a substance called jurongda, jurongda, du, jurongdu. Within it, apart from taking in semen, the new initiates are forced to observe a strict diet that will allow them that will give them strength. If you gr scroll back where we were before, though, it talks about w the mothers. Until, yeah. until the blowjobs, this kind of sounded like a Spartan take on an ayahuasca ceremony. Right, but it's it's also the, like they're removed from their mothers because they're the they've okay. Scroll up, keep going up there. Yeah, the reason for detaching the boys because the tribe considers the blood of women to be unclean. That's really common, like worldwide. <sighs> Hence, the lads are separated from their mothers and any other females so their blood won't be contaminated as they mature into adulthood. The semen drinking custom is in different stages. The initial stage, as soon as the young Sambia boys turn age seven or nine, they're instantly taken from their mothers as a form of detachment. This is fucking wild shit. I mean, there's there's a lot of crazy shit out there. I mean, they still have um, uh, it's sort of as a mark of mourning if a if a you know, family member dies, people cut off the tip of a finger, and so you get up into some of the more remote parts of the highlands and you meet someone, you shake their hand, and they might have only sort of one full finger left. Oh, but it's also hard to tell because everyone's got these you know sort of you know eighteen inch machete blades that they use for everything. And, you know, I think some just get lost, you know, sort of by mistake. Right. Um, though it's it's just the most. I mean, the country is so geographically broken, you know, like the terrain is so inhospitable, so hard to travel through that they've developed all these very, very 
quirky customs because all the tribes are in such isolation. I mean, the country has something like 750 languages. Wow. Um, although they, they nowadays communicate largely just with uh, uh, pidgin English or tokpijin, as they call it, which is a sort of a broken English, kind of bastardized, simple English. Um, but before that, you know, the tribes, you might have one tribe that's living in one valley and two miles away in another valley for hundreds of years as another tribe and they've never had any contact with each other. So they develop different languages, different customs, different mm. faith, religions, everything. And it's it's like that across the country, particularly up in the highlands. The, the river deltas are a bit different. But I mean, the highlands are thought to be uninhabited until the 1930s. And then this um, these, these Australian brothers, these gold prospectors, flew over the interior in a light aircraft for the first time. And they looked down and they saw valleys with clear signs of habitation. So they mounted an expedition and over weeks marched up into the interior with you know, dozens of porters. And they found about a million people living there. These just kind of lost Stone Age peoples that most of them didn't know they were on an island with a coast on which people lived, let alone a huge world beyond that with you know all sorts of other people. Wow. Um, one of the, well, actually, there were three Australian brothers. Um, two of them ended up staying and living in PNG. One of them married three I think maybe sisters, um, but three three women who were tribal uh, princesses, and this is this is a, a sort of um, let me get this right an Irish emigre Australian gold prospector in the thirties who's from this massive outside interconnected world, suddenly going up and marrying people from a civilization that you know had no smelting, they just had stone tools, uh, no writing, no literature, and that. Uh, that uh, one of those marriages had several children. I met one of those guys, this guy who's the product of the son of these two totally disparate worlds, this kind of clash of civilizations, which I found so interesting. What was he like? He was great. Bernie, a really nice guy. He's kind of, uh, he, he manages a coffee plantation in a town called Hagen up in the Highlands. Really sound dude. I got to hang out with him a bit, got to know him well. And he's just a, just a nice sort of normal guy. Um, I suppose because his mother was a princess, he's sort of, kind of a senior within the tribe, but at the same time, kind of half foreigner and half outsider. So he's sort of between the two worlds as well. Do you still have contact with his father? <laughs> uh, his father had passed away. There's a really good documentary called First Contact, 80s documentary. It's on YouTube. It's part of a trilogy, the Black Harvest trilogy. But First Contact is um, with interviews with these three brothers, by which point they're already quite old. But on their first encounter, getting up into the highlands, these people they met, there's footage, there's photos from this this you know, unique encounter in the 1930s. Really, really interesting. Um, this this is not the same place where there's there's a tribe there where they have these, they've made models of airplanes that they worship. The cargo cults. Those, I, yeah. I believe, I mean, that... It's that part of the world. I don't think it's Papua New Guinea. It could be potentially part of the, some of the Solomon Islands. It might be some small um, uh, Filipino islands. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I know. I know what you mean. And yeah. Yeah. They would see these planes and think that they were gods. And so then they've they recreated them. They've recreated them out of like sticks. And yeah. They had like bamboo uh, yeah. radio, radio control towers and and like bamboo radios that obviously don't work. They're just bamboos. They had yeah. I, I, but I, I've read about that a long time ago. I can't remember the details that well. But yeah, that was pretty cool. How fascinating that in the 1930s they were able to find these Stone Age tribes there. Well, it makes you think. I mean, there are still rumors that in Papua New Guinea there might still be uncontacted tribes. Um, like in the Amazon, there's still right. like a few dozen uncontacted tribes. But I believe most of them 
sort of know there's a world out there, but the Brazilian largely government sort of protects them and keeps them in isolation as much as anything because they're just vulnerable to disease, perhaps. Mm. Um, but then the the one, I think the most astounding kind of lost tribe is the the North Sentinelese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're aware of these sure. guys, yeah. And every now and again, someone marches That's out with the Bible. That's where the missionary, and, yeah. 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 Do, you, do you know who uh, Commander Maurice Vidal Portman is? No. He's a famous British explorer slash pervert <laughs> who went to uh, visit those people. And uh, he's probably responsible for their hostility towards uh, outsiders in right. a lot of ways. Because uh, this guy would go there and dress them up in weird outfits and measure their dicks and shit. And That was yeah. North Sentinel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, are there, was, are there pictures uh, of it was cl- He was on neighboring islands, but, I mean, I think they got wind of this character yeah there's pictures of him and there's pictures of uh natives dressed up like roman soldiers and stuff he would do weird shit with them and he would comment on the size of their penises and testicles so he's like measuring them and stuff and he was clearly some fucking weirdo mm. who was involved in some very strange shit and he was doing it you know the auspices of science and ex- exploration <laughs> yeah but he's i think he's one of the reasons why i think that that the most recent merc- uh, missionary got murdered Right. Because they probably have, they don't have a written language. So they probably no. have these oral stories and these legends of these white dudes who show up and start measuring dicks and give everybody the flu. Yeah. Well, I think there's only a few dozen of them. And after the big um, tsunami back in was it 2003, mm-hmm. 2002, 2003, um, after that, it was years before there were any signs of them seen again. So potentially they, you know, came close to destruction yeah there's been a few boats that have been stranded nearby and have barely gotten away before these people uh murdered them arrows and spears yeah well there um there's only 39 of them that they've documented they don't know how many there are there they don't even think they have fire they've got to have fire i don't know i think there's some dispute as to whether or not they have fire well because if it i mean how wet is their climate Mm mm-hmm you know, I don't know. They do know that they have metal now. They seem to have fashioned knives and swords from the uh, wreckage of one of the ships. Up. Yeah. 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 Well, that'd be interesting. I mean, I <laughs> I have no intentions of marching in there. Well, it's just um, crazy. It's wild. Yeah, uncontacted people in this day and age is very strange. I mean, there are there's semi-contacted people in the Amazon, and it's just um, it's it's so interesting because you get essentially a window into 60,000 years ago with the, the people in North Sentinel Island. They, the people that, that live there, the direct descendants of people left Africa mm-hmm. 60,000 years ago and landed on that island. Yeah, and there's, there's interesting sort of, because of the, the sort of exodus is the wrong word, I guess, but the, the migrations out of Africa came in waves. Mm. And some of the early people seem to have, you know, with their wave of migration, headed all the way up, over, around, down, and into Melanesia. So the, the Aborigines and the New Guineans are from like a very, very ancient wave of migration. And everyone else came a lot later, but these people had already inhabited these, well, I guess the two islands were one continent at that time, the sea levels were lower. But they had already sort of started existing in total isolation for... I mean, people, the numbers get disputed because they keep finding more things that pushes back the timeline. But now they're looking, it was for ages 40,000 years. Now they're looking at sort of 60 to 80,000 years, mm. just living, you know, totally isolated while, you know, the rest of the world was, I suppose, a more interconnected, you know, the human trade networks very quickly brought corners of the world into interconnection. I mean, it's only about, is it 12, 15,000 years ago that people crossed the Bering Strait to the Americas mm-hmm. and the Americas were populated? I mean, that's... Yeah. 
you know, it's kind of a blink of an eye compared to 80,000. Well, I think people were here before that then now. Now they're, they're pushing the timeline back of uh, human beings in North America, which is really interesting. They're finding uh, a lot of uh, pre-Clovis uh, evidence of civilizations, right. stone tools and all sorts of other things and fossilized remains. I read a book by someone who you had on this podcast a while ago whose name I'm going to forget, but you had him on with Randall Carson one time. And he's got... Graham Hancock? Graham Hancock, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, some of his theories seemed a, a little tenuous, but some of them were fascinating, like evidence of civilizations being in places, you know, tens of thousands of years before anyone yeah. thought. And, and uh, I mean, it was through that podcast record that I was first introduced to Gobekli Tepe. And, mm. you know, that, it's just, it's incredible how, I guess, with new archaeological techniques, new scanning, new LIDAR, just the, the books are being totally rewritten on a kind of yearly basis. Yeah, well, they're they're all a proponent now of the the two of those guys together was, is a really fascinating conversa- uh, combination because they're they're proponents of the younger Dryas impact theory, and there's a lot of physical evidence that points to that. And what that younger Dryas impact theory is is that there was a certain time somewhere between it's there's multiple times, but it started around twelve thousand years ago. There was impacts. And the impacts uh, from asteroid impacts so reversed an ice age, or yeah, caused it, it an ice stopped age or, the ice age. Yeah. It killed the ice age, and 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 probably um, did it very quickly. And the impacts, it, it, Randall Carlson has some really fascinating physical evidence that points to it. First of all, core samples. When they go to the core samples and they go to twelve thousand years ago, there's a direct evidence of iridium, lar- large amounts of iridium, which is very common in space and very rare on Earth. Also, um, nuclear glass. Uh, Trinitite, I think it's called, and, and it's, it's named after the Trinity, um, the first uh, nuclear bomb experiments, right. and that they detect this glass that uh, happens when they detonate a nuclear bomb, but also happens on uh, impacts of comets and asteroids, mm-hmm. and that this stuff is all over the place so at that like same... Sort of like obsidian, that kind of... Yes, yeah. yes. And this stuff is all, it's sort of like that, but it's it directly caused by impacts. But this stuff all exists in this time period of 12,000 years ago. Right. And then again, somewhere, um, they believe somewhere 11 or 10,000 years ago. So most likely what they're supposing, what the theory is, is that there was probably a very advanced civilization that created things like Gobekli Tepe. And there's even some um, theories about um, the old kingdom of Egypt that there was uh, some very sophisticated architecture and construction methods that were date back far beyond what we think of. When we think of uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza, they believe is 2,500 years old, but he thinks that it's very possible that was even earlier than that. And there's also some physical evidence um, that was uncovered by geologist Ron Shock, uh, Robert Schock rather, from Boston University where he points to the water erosion around the Temple of the Sphinx yeah. that shows signs of thousands of years of rainfall. I remember that. Yeah, and yeah. the problem with that is the last time there was real rainfall in the Nile Valley was 9,000 years ago, and that the whole area back then used to be a rainforest. Mm. And that, so he's like, you have to go at least that far back, but probably thousands of years before that, because you need thousands of years of rainfall to develop these deep fissures so in the like stone structure. Of, yeah. yeah. That they, they don't indicate erosion by sand and wind. The problem is archaeologists and um, people who have been teaching in universities and writing books about 
the history of these uh, these people are very reluctant to accept this new information, even though it's like, you know, when when you're talking about geology, when you're talking about like clear evidence of water erosion, like this is like rock solid stuff. This is not like yeah. There's stuff. like there's like a knock on effect as well. Yes. I suppose if you know if, if you admit that one thing is significantly exactly. older or was formed in a different way or in a different place to something else, then that just knocks everything else out of whack and you've basically got to start your entire archaeological process again, which I guess is why you get, you know, wrongly, because that's not the scientific method, but you get resistance to these you know, new ideas. It's very um, unfortunate when you see the resistance too, because it's so clearly ego-based. I've seen people argue against it and they get really angry and they start insulting and ad hominems and it's really weird. Because the the real the one that you can't fuck with is Gobekli Tepe, because Gobekli Tepe was purposely covered somewhere in the neighborhood of twelve thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and um, they know that for a fact. They've they've tested all the soil around it, and they're in the middle of excavating that site, and it's an immense site with these enormous stone columns and three D animals carved on the columns which indicate that they weren't carved into the columns. The columns were carved around to create these 3D animals, which is really sophisticated stuff, and it's more than 12,000 years old. It was covered up. And so think up. it was like a deliberate time capsule to preserve... They don't know. Cult- I, mean, I think that was Graham's theory. Yeah, least. it's his it's, theory, it's like but... A, to, to, to preserve, you know, in, in the... What's the whole, you know, the antediluvian, you know, some, mm-hmm. you know the flood uh, myth that seems to... Or story, at least, that seems to be in so many different cultures. Yeah, that's but that's I think that ties in with Randall's idea of a you know, a huge wave of floods and the ice age yes. stopping. Yeah, yeah. Well, that <clears throat> ending of the ice age. One one of the things that they point to is the geographical or the geological evidence, rather, all over North America that seemed to indicate massive amounts of water moving through areas radically and quickly, changing the landscape. And Randall has some really um, incredible. Uh, evidence of that that he shows in the form of slides and as you zoom out and you see the the water evidence it's really interesting stuff because we have this inclination to look at history okay we've got that down we've got it this is it mm-hmm. and then upon new evidence instead of like going oh maybe we were wrong they just dig their heels in and they say no I read a, wrote a book on this I p- made my thesis about this this is fact well, I think that's exactly the same even with modern human history we're really resistant to kind of think that the way we I mean there's in the last few years a lot in Britain I don't know how much about in in the US but there's been a big discussion about how we view and teach our history you know of, of the British Empire for example of colonialism because right. when I was growing up we were taught that like Britain conquered the world and brought civilization to all the you know the noble savages you know and it was it was totally insane and it's right. only just about now and particularly summer two years ago with the debate about tach- statues and should we really learn our history from statues or should we learn it from you know books and reassessing facts and you know should we have statues you know, commemorating people who maybe did horrific things. But all these, you know, these sort of, you know, arguments, debates, and essentially culture war has brought to the fore this idea of, you know, we definitely need to sometimes reassess history. And that can work both ways as well. Um, But, you know, history isn't fact, whether it's the history of a landscape over tens of thousands of years or the history of a people over a century. Um, And I think that's, you know, tying it neatly back in. That's what I find interesting with Russia, because Russia is able to recreate as convenient its history every 10 years or so in a cynical way, admittedly. But mm. it shows that history is not a fixed, determinate thing. Well, it's unfortunate we don't have like a real rock solid history of the world. 
we have some really amazing evidence and some incredible work has been done by archaeologists and geologists and all these people that are trying to get a, a sense of it but there's resistance to there's resistance to change there's a resistance to you know accepting these alternative theories well can you imagine trying to be a historian two or three hundred years from now looking at this era mm. the amount of information that you have to sift through right some of which is bullshit some of which is you know all of it will contradict each other i right. mean that's a headache that task you know history is only going to get harder because <laughs> there's just a you know complete preponderance of information there's a preponderance of information but at least we have information we have accurate you right. know, footage but you know that was only a short period that's now ending because now we don't know if footage is real you know there's deep right. fakes there's all sorts, you know, the, right. the, the the age of kind of, I suppose, empirical media is 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 kind of you know on its way out. You know, or at least that you can be insured is empirical because from now on, who knows what's what. What's also interesting when you know, for a long time, they had no idea what happened to the Mayans. You know, and there they there was all these theories about them leaving, what happened, and now the the predominant theory is they were killed by disease. Smallpox. Yeah, which makes yeah. more sense than anything. Well, I mean, I, I think it's now believed that after uh, Europeans first arrived in the Americas, within, I think it's within 100 years, 90% of the yes. population had died. Yes, from, which is from astounding. disease. And, yes. you know, they're only just now starting to find these traces of vast civilizations in the Amazon. I'm yes. sure there'll be many more to come. You know, these 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 uh, there, are, there are rock paintings appearing. There are, uh, in one particular point um uh, evidence of um sort of ramps up to the amazon on one side of the river and then down on the other you know bridges that would have spanned hundreds of meters you know huge yeah. kind of you know complex and, and quite advanced civilizations that just you know if you in a jungle if everyone dies it'll grow over in no time at all and and it seems like a lot of people might have returned to a hunter-gathering you know subsistence uh, life in the jungle from that because if there's a plague you know plagues are usually in in you know sort of pre-scientific times and even perhaps today are viewed by a lot of people as kind of divine retribution punishments so they flee the city head to the you yes. know, head back into the wild and i'm sure plenty of people saw covid at that for some for some time as well covid has uh, that was well, a lot worse than covid smallpox but yeah. the, the other thing is uh, the lidar evidence have mm -hmm. you seen that stuff that they're using is this the the uh, the big ring cities were built built in big circular shapes not just that but grids that indicate irrigation and right. In blocks of cities and Graham Hancock talked about that as well on the podcast and there's a great video that's available on YouTube where he just discusses um, the potential population of the Amazon reaching as much as 20 million people at one point in time mm -hmm. that there's vast cities there did you also know that the Amazon itself was created by agriculture that the, the all that rainforest most of those trees were a direct result of different trees and different plants that people planted when there was a civilization. So it had and then been it, savannah or you know, pampas or something? Or? Well, it was just different. They're, they're not exactly sure what it, you, you know, they right. used to think it was all natural, and now they don't think it's natural. Go, please pull up something about that. Now that there's direct evidence. Um, here it goes. While pre previously thought to have been an empty wilderness in pre-contact times, it's become increasingly clear that the Amazon has... First, a deep and ancient pattern of human settlement dating back to 12,000 years ago. And second, that much of the Amazon jungle that we know today is, in fact, uh, an anthropogenic... If you just click on that, there's, there's actually better articles that detail it. Okay, here it goes. Um, 
while previously thought to have been an empty wilderness, uh, okay, the Amazon infers a deep and ancient pattern. Second, that much of the Amazon jungle we know is in fact an anthropogenic landscape. That is, the Amazon has been modified extensively by indigenous populations for the past 12,000 years. The changes that the indigenous populations made in the Amazon rainforest in the past were nowhere near the level of intensive extractive we see going on in the massive deforestation burning today. Rather, indigenous populations increase the overall, overall biodiversity and quality of the soil. This is not what I'm looking for. There's a, there's a better article that shows that most of the trees in the Amazon were a result of agriculture. So that was sort um, of creating uh, ecological diversity. To and then it just, when people died, it just overran. Yeah. And it over, overwhelmed what used to be these cities. You know, that's the whole... Um, Legend of the Lost City of Z, right? That book? Yeah, um, in the I read film that. that. It was, was great. Um, there it is. Matt, um, Grant, oh, Supposedly pristine, untouched Amazon rainforest was actually shaped by humans. Over thousands of years, native people play a strong role in molding the ecology of this vast wilderness. And this is from the Smithsonian, so it's a legitimate source, but there's a bunch of different trees that they point to that these people planted, and then these trees just overwhelmed the the landscape with the when all the people died off from the plague, mm -hmm. you know. And when they're using the lidar to go over these areas that they used to assume were just mounds, they're realizing, oh, this is, used to be structures, yeah. And there used to be people living in these areas. That's it's, it's fascinating. It's wild stuff, man. Yeah. Well, listen, Charlie, I'm glad you're alive. <laughs> I'm glad you're not in a Russian prison, and uh, I'm glad uh, I had a chance to talk to you. And these books that you have out that are available right now, uh, one is uh, On Roads That Echo, and the other is Through Sand and Snow. Do you, did you do an audio version of these as well? Uh, yeah, they're both on Audible. Did Kindle. you read it? I read it. Oh, excellent. Um, Love hearing that. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're out. Get hold of them. Um, but thank you so much for having My me My pleasure. On. It's, what, been, it's been a lot of fun, and thanks to Jamie and you for having me here. It's been awesome. Our pleasure. Thank you very much for coming. And do you have social media that people can find you on as well? Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter, at CW Explore, like Charlie Walker, CW mm -hmm. Explore. Um, explore explore there it is right there CW explore uh, and my website is cwexplore.com um, check it out that's where I post most of my stuff um, and I don't know what will be next yet but uh, that's the place to follow it well when you come up with another one let us know and I'd love to sit down and do this again that'd be a pleasure and uh, stay out of jail buddy please <laughs> <laughs> thank you Charlie cheers alright bye everybody